Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This, the first emergency episode of Deep State Radio, created because of the demand of our listeners. Actually, I think some of the listeners who are creating the demand um, were animals, but, you know, you'll have to check that on the Internet to see what the origins of this actually were. Um, Part of the reason for this, of course, is to do with breaking news over the past few days, uh, and we'll get into that right away. Uh, First, let me introduce our guests. Sitting lakeside in Minnesota is old friend, Colin Call uh, in Washington in our tiny studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. We have Georgetown University's Rosa Brooks and Heather Hurlbert of both the New America Foundation and New York Magazine, where she writes a column. Rosa, are we at a turning David. point in our great national... Dr- yeah, Rosa, are we at a turning point in our great national drama... Well, if I can quote one of your recent comments, maybe yes, maybe no, maybe in between. It is definitely one of those three. Uh, I, you know, the I was I was actually thinking this this morning as I, I looked at the headline in the Washington Post, uh, which said something along the lines of, you know, White House plunged into chaos by latest twists in Russia's scandal. And I thought, I think I've read that headline about once a week for the last six months. So on the one hand, Clearly, what we have is the most concrete thing and most damning thing yet to suggest actual knowing collusion on the part of uh, several people in the Trump campaign, most notably uh, Trump's son, Don Jr., uh, with what they at least believed to be an active Russian government effort to help Donald Trump win the election. Uh, On the other hand, is this a turning point? Who knows? Uh, uh, we keep, you know, each week brings new craziness. Each week we say, surely the nation cannot survive this level of craziness. Surely this administration cannot survive. And yet it sort of just goes on and on and on. So whether this really ends up making a difference or being a turning point, who knows? What do you think of that, Heather? The turning point I do think we're at this time is that we've had a, a peel off of conservative intelligentsia Um that we have that you haven't seen before. I was I didn't really know that there was a conservative intelligentsia. Yeah. All right. So maybe I've got, I've got my mind fixed in 19th century wow. Russia for wow. reasons that's that... very, that's, that's very hurtful to all of our conservative listeners. Rosa. Except for Corey. 
Yeah, I will. I will speak for for conservative intelligentsia, if only because I need them to keep my mind fixated in nineteenth century Russia. Reasons for which will become obvious later in the broadcast. Dun dun dun. But you you see, if I I recommend Heather will, Heather will be reading from Dostoevsky later in the broadcast <laughs> and Do reciting the Declaration of Independence in Russian. That is the Declaration of Dependence. <laughs> no, but in in all seriousness, watching um, conservative intellectuals, both the ones that were already sort of fully off the Trump boat and some of the ones that have tried to make the best of the Trump boat, um, wrestle with the, the national humiliation that is Don Trump Jr. saying, this is great about I love it. the I love it, the offer of compromising material. So you've clearly reached a turning point in the sort of further degradation of the Republican Party as an institution with a with a venerable intellectual wing. Notice I didn't say worthy of veneration. I just said venerable. Um, whether that turns out to make any difference in its hold in power or not, um, I'm not so sure. Colin, are you in hiding in Minnesota? Are you afraid of things that are happening in Washington? Are you... Uh- Shopping, I am for a, a, a used nuclear weapon silo. Colin is already in a used I, we- weapon silo. <laughs> we have grain silos out here, actually. Uh, yes, I'm in <laughs> hiding here. You know, I, I, uh, about a week ago, the Washington Free Beacon wrote a hit piece on me, blaming me for every problem and leak in the Trump administration, well, and uh, Colin, given all the death threats is, I got on Twitter. I, I'm just saying, I, I'm hiding out in rural Minnesota. I can't tell you exactly where. Uh, but <laughs> the fact that it's uh, no, closer it, it, to the missile silos in North Dakota is entirely coincidental. <laughs> exactly right. Um, but I think it's appropriate that that uh, I'm on deep state radio as a consequence of me being, you know, the focal point for the grand conspiracy. That's against, the way uh, the it Trump goes. Administration. That's, um, why, that's why we have you here. <laughs> we we but, embrace uh, you. We embrace you and your efforts to undermine the nation. Yeah. Or at least the <laughs> Trump I, administration. I, 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 Right. Um, David, I don't know. I mean, in terms of whether the news of the past couple of days is a game changer, I do think we've moved a lot closer. Uh, you know, we've, we've had a lot of smoke for a long time and we're a lot closer to a smoking gun uh, or at least the first of maybe a number of them. Um, I mean, what I think so what's so intriguing about uh, the Don Jr. Uh, scandal that's erupted, uh, you know, this past week as a consequence of a bunch of New York Times uh, reporting uh, is that it, it's it, it really is the closest we've gotten uh, in writing to suggesting kind of both halves of the collusion story, both the the offer uh, from the Russians to help uh, Trump uh, win the presidency and, uh, frankly, uh, the ask on the Russian side to lift sanctions. And I think uh, listeners shouldn't shouldn't uh, uh, forget that either. I mean, so you have this meeting uh, that Don Jr. Uh, gladly accepted uh, where the email from a publicist friend of his made clear that the Russian government was sending an emissary uh, uh, to uh, provide dirt on Hillary. Um, and uh, Don said, I loved it. I love it. And it would be especially useful if that stuff was came out in the late summer. Uh, we, a topic maybe we should come uh, back to. They set up this meeting. Uh, Manafort, uh, still the campaign chairman, uh, shows up, as does uh, Kushner, uh, the president's son-in-law and, and one of his closest advisors. They clearly uh, set up the meeting hoping to get dirt on Clinton. Uh, that Don uh, in, Don Jr. In a, in a statement that, at least according to the newspapers today, suggested was was approved on Air Force One by President Trump himself, uh, initially suggested the meeting was just about adoption, which was a little bit of a Jedi mind trick uh, in the sense that 
uh, what it, what the, that aspect of the meeting appeared to be about was the Mag, uh, Magnitsky Act, uh, which is actually uh, some human rights sanctions that were passed in 2012 against a bunch of high-level Russians and really put a lot of fear of God into some folks around Putin and has been a high priority uh, uh, in the Putin uh, government to get rid of. So you kind of in this meeting have both halves of the collusion equation. You have an offer uh, uh, to damage Clinton and help Trump uh, become president and an ask uh, related to sanctions. So it, it really, I think, brings to the fore a lot of what we've been talking about in the last several months. Well, Rosa, in your position as chief justice of the Supreme Kangaroo Court of the Deep State, as you, you know, and also associate dean of the Georgetown Law School, as you look at this and you sort of assess, you know, what do we know now? You know, it, you know, what is the, 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 what are the nature of the potential offenses here? Mm, um, yeah. It's been interesting to watch as sort of Twitter and social media and the cable news and so forth are chewing on this that they seem to be mo using a term more often now, and I don't know that it's legally significant, but they seem to be moving towards the term conspiracy and away from the term collusion. But, but without going into some too, too lengthy uh, a breakdown of this, I, I want to pick up on Colin's point a second ago with regard to the, um, the, the thing that I thought was most interesting buried in these, these emails, um, or one of the most interesting, which was, uh, we could really use this later in the summer. And I, and I want to lay out the timeline, and then I'd like us all to talk about it. We have, in early June, uh, the first signs that the Russians, uh, uh, Guccifer and some of these others, are hacking into the DNC. Shortly after uh, this meeting takes place, um, uh, at which a representative of the Russian government offers help uh, in uh, defeating Hillary promises information. Interestingly, the very same day the meeting takes place, um, uh, candidate Trump says uh, starts talking about emails. Um, uh, then, as the summer evolves, um, there were seemingly other kinds of communications. Roger Stone has referenced them, and so forth, um, which lead up to uh, the. Uh, a sort of extremely well-timed release of, uh, I guess, the Podesta emails at roughly the same time that Trump was having his problems with the Access Hollywood tape. Uh, there are also stories now, and today as we're recording this, there's a McClatchy story out there saying that one of the things that investigators are looking at is that um, Jared Kushner, uh, who was leading the campaign's digital operations, may have targeted some of the or helped the Russians target disinformation based on some of the digital information uh, that uh, the uh, campaign had about where voters were. Uh, and that all of this led not only into uh, uh, further releases of information, Trump cheering them on, but that ultimately it also led to an administration in which in the first instance, Mike Flynn is meeting with senior officials. Jared Kushner is meeting with senior Russian officials. And they're bending U.S. policy away from the Obama stance towards a Russian stance or promising that the policy will be bent. And they've continued to do that. And so the pattern is Russia offers to help. 
Trump team seems to embrace it. Trump team seems to direct it. Uh, Russia supports their election, and Trump supports them subsequently. What's is there a legal case in that, or could this at some point in the future just be looked at like, oh, those crazy Trumps using the <laughs> Russians, you know, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think as as ever the unanswered question is, is this a conspiracy to commit a crime or is this just uh, Trump idiocy, idiocy, greed and cluelessness on display, uh, which is not unfortunately necessarily criminal? And, 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 you know, we don't know the answer yet. Is this, to use a different metaphor, you know, if you think of, uh, you know, connect the dots, we just got a whole bunch more dots and they're really big dots and some more lines are connecting them. Uh, but we don't – I don't think that there is enough – you know, if if I were a prosecutor based solely on what is in the public domain now, I'd kind of go, oh, I don't think we quite have enough here yet. Um, um, are we getting closer? Yes, we are getting closer. Uh, is it possible that that Robert Mueller has more than we have? Absolutely. Um, but I think that we don't yet we don't yet have the real smoking gun, which is evidence of awareness on the part of anyone in the Trump campaign that is definite that the Russians intended to go ahead and uh, you know manipulate the election the specific ways that they did. Um, what we have so far, as you said, is we we have pretty clear evidence that uh, there was an awareness at very high levels from this email chain uh, that Donald Trump Jr. has just posted, of course, only when he knew the New York Times was about to post it. We have awareness that at a minimum, uh, he had been informed that the Russian government wanted to help the tip the election in favor of uh, his father. Um, uh, we know that he knew that. We know that Jared Kushner and and Manafort knew that because they were in that email chain in addition to being in the actual meeting. So they presumably had access to the exact same information. Uh, and we know that the Russians did play a role sub subsequently in uh, releasing some of the emails that helped tip the election. Uh, and our intelligence community is telling us that the Russians also played a major role in ensuring that other forms of disinformation got out there to the detriment of Hillary Clinton. That's not the same yet as having evidence that, you know, I, I mean, what we what we want if we're prosecutors, right? If you're a prosecutor, what you want now is an email in which somebody in the Trump campaign says, thanks so much, Russians. We really appreciate all that your government is doing uh, and we're going to do everything we can to you know, further that. And by the way, a great moment to release those hacked emails would be such and such. And I told dad and he says it's awesome. Uh, thank you so much. We will, sure, we will sure show our appreciation by getting rid of those pesky sanctions. And we don't have that yet. It may be out there, but, which is Heather, not to say that it's not there. What, what's amazing is that <laughs> you Heather, can, how you can, close how <laughs> close could we be to that? I mean, the the the, the Donald Jr. emails say, uh, "Really interested in your nasty information on Hillary. I would love it if that's what you've got, and the best time to release it would be late in the summer." And I mean, isn't that just what Rosa said? It's as Rosa said. It's getting closer to what Rosa said, and. 
David, to the question of how close we are, honestly, this is a place where I think you sort of this question deserves to be turned back to you as you may the, be the, the preeminent expert on it among the four of us. But the the piece that I thought needed to be added to your chronology is that for decades before those emails are exchanged, um, despite them all having lied about it in public subsequently, the, the Trump family has been very deeply engaged in doing business with an array of governmental – Shady. Shady and seemingly non-governmental but highly shady folks in Russia. And one of the reasons that I think that it's it's non-trivially likely that an email containing at least half of Rosa's desiderata does exist and will come to light is that it looks very much like Russian entities have been propping up Trump financial operations for some time. And the – If only we had those tax returns. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say I don't see any reason to believe there to be anything particularly honest on the tax returns. But um, it does look – because um, post-communist Russian society fuses intelligence, high power, finance and crime so closely together, um, it just looks very likely that for a long time before last summer – um, high power in Russia was aware of of Trump as someone who was beholden to them in a number of financial ways and that the Trump operation appears to have been very happy to take Russian money without understanding that there might be political costs to that money, which, you know, when you consider that the man had dabbled in running for president but didn't believe even last summer that he was really seriously, extremely likely to win – that they were just used to saying whatever in emails without without any expectation of there being any um, mm. sort of higher mm-hmm. state consequences. So it seems incredibly likely to me that there are going to be some very damning emails out there if, if by damning you mean the idea that there's no line whatsoever between – what's good for Trump enterprises in colluding with really deeply problematic Russian entities and a campaign for president slash running the United States. I, I, Colin, I'd be interested to know what you think of that because I, I think that seems absolutely right, that they've been living essentially in a world of, of money and entertainment, you know, and where there are sort of no consequences for anything you do. And I think that this whole world in which there are intelligence agencies and law enforcement and geopolitics is so alien to them that they've continued their reality TV ways. And they, I think Heather's probably right. I bet there's a lot worse out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, partly yeah. there's a pattern in which Trump has engaged in unethical and arguably illegal activities for a long time. He just waits until he gets called on and ensued and then he settles. And so there's never any accountability. I think that the Trump family in general yeah. – uh, you know, they operate in a, in a world, you know, large scale global real estate that is among the shadiest and most corrupt <laughs> uh, types of businesses that you can uh, uh, possibly engage in. Uh, and they've really never had any consequences uh, for that other than occasionally having to, you know, uh, lose some money or, or, or not uh, in a lawsuit. Um, I, I think in this case, obviously, this particular contact, this uh, this contact that was described to Don Jr. in the email as a Russian government attorney, although 
Uh, we now know she's not actually an employee of the Russian government, but has represented their interests on a number uh, of occasions, but nevertheless was represented to them as a, as a Russian government attorney, that this came through a publicist of a Russian pop star whose father is a big real estate tycoon uh, and uh, you know a friend of Donald Trump's, uh, is actually known in Russia as the Russian Donald Trump, uh, and that they all kind of helped get the Miss Universe pageant uh, in Moscow in 2013. So there is, are these overlapping circles of celebrity, business, crime, real estate, and Russians uh, that weave all in and out of the Trump enterprise and have for years and years and years. I don't know about the rest of you, but yeah. one of the reasons I went into Russian studies and then into foreign policy low these many years ago was precisely in order that I would not have to think about the Miss Universe pageant while doing my day job. Damn it. <laughs> it's true. It didn't really come well, up a whole a, lot when Colin and I were at the Pentagon. <laughs> It was a serious miscalculation on your part, Heather. It sure was. Um, it is kind of great, though. I mean, I do think we, as a footnote, have to observe that the characters that are being brought into this thing are, you know, fantastic. This guy Goldstone um, is truly an Elmore Leonard character. Actually, the whole thing seems to be written by Elmore Leonard with the sort of second-rate entertainer and the oligarch and Trump and Fredo or... Or Uday. We had a good discussion the other day about whether he's Fredo or Uday, Donald Jr. And, of course, Jared and so forth. There's no, there's nobody who's bland in all of this. And Roger Stone with his tattoo of Nixon and <laughs> Manafort. And, I mean, it's 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 an absolutely bizarre world. Well, and can but I add another Rosa, if, Oprah and Jerry Springer element before you try to get serious again? Yeah, um, I yeah. poor Donald Jr. Right? I mean, I'm torn between thinking, boy, that guy is as sleazy as his dad, versus thinking like that poor young man. Someone should call social services and get him out of the clutches of his evil family. You know, can you imagine being Donald Trump's son? Can you? I mean, I can't even conceive it. And and Donald Jr. is the is the member of that original Donald Sr. and Ivana Trump family. He reportedly didn't speak to his father for five years after uh, his father ditched his mother for, uh, uh, I guess it was Marla Maples that time around. Um, and as far as we know, his father has often treated him quite badly and quite dismissively. And, and, and I keep waiting for Don Jr. to have a moment where he stands up and casts off his shackles and says, you're right. My father is a raging asshole. And you want to know everything there is to know about his business dealings? I'll tell you. Uh, so, Don Jr., I encourage you to take that step. It will be liberating, liberating for you. It will be good for your psyche and it will be good for America. That's going to be Tiffany who does yeah, that. I, Tiffany. But I think I wanted to – I am um, the, totally counting on, on, on what you're saying to be right here, Heather. It is going to be Tiffany. I believe this is the Game of Thrones moment. All these people kill each other off and then she ends up inheriting it all and they keep begging her for mercy and ends up, you know, that she she denies it to all of them. Um, but anyway, go, go a, ahead. A Twitter meme of Tiffany with three dragon eggs that needs to be produced <laughs> immediately following well, this. Well, I would, uh, I would, yeah. She's, nerd cast. She's, she's a bit more of a Lannister than she is Daenerys, <laughs> but I... I, I I, I see where you're going there. And, of course, it's a good thing Corey's not on this episode to not understand what we're talking about. Sorry, Heather. No, I was going to draw the contrast with uh, Chaikin, the 
No, Chaika, sorry. It's it's a direct translation of seagull from Russian, by the way, which gives you all an excuse to go go look up your Chekhov. If you don't like the Game of Thrones references, you can switch to Chekhov references at this point. But um, like President Trump, um, this guy has two adult sons who have gotten immensely rich. Um, this guy being uh, – remind everybody who he is. He's thank the, you. So he's the Russian equivalent of attorney general. He's the gentleman referenced in the Goldstone emails as supposedly the high government authority from which um, the Russian lawyer has been sent. And oh, by the way, he's part of Putin's small clique of people who come out of the Soviet era security structures and thus have dirt on everybody, know where all the bodies are buried. This guy's illustrious career, we first start tracing him in the late 70s when he's actually somehow working with a prison in Siberia. There's a riot at the prison and he delivers drugs to the prisoners to get them to rat out other prisoners. Um, you know, if you this is this is Russian crime fiction. Forget Elmore Leonard. This is Boris Akunin, people like that. But he has two sons like President Trump and his two sons are unaccountably, unfathomably rich. Um, and they have taken up residence in Switzerland with their money in their houses. And That's what I'm going to do when I become unfathomably, unaccountably rich. Um, when um, they got into a little trouble in the Russian media, the interesting thing, and this just Rosa to draw a contrast with what you were saying, their father said, well, they're adult men. How they make their money is their own business. I have no idea how they make their money. And it's it's been very interesting to, to watch the kind of infantilization of um, – the two Trump sons, commonly referred to as the Trump boys. And, you know, to think about other contexts in life in which 39-year-old men who have run afoul of the law are referred to as boys. And, you know, on some level, I feel sorry for him, too. I feel terribly sorry for Barron, um, the little one, mm. um, I, because I, I think that's not yet irre yeah. irredeemable. But, but I do, at the same time, it's this fascinating ability that the family has, even on us who are clearly all, you know, not fans, to somehow not see them for what they are, which is major enablers and or architects of this policy to to derange the American, um, at least our electoral system, if not uh, also our broader political system. Is a very interesting point. By the way, um, Heather set me up perfectly here uh, as I'm sitting in the tiny studio at Columbia University where we record from New York. I can actually see the building at uh, Columbia where I directed The Seagull in my senior year of college. No, no way. way. Uh, okay, David. Listeners, listeners, you're never going to believe that I didn't the, know that in advance, okay. but I didn't know it oh, in advance. But this just shows and, well, how deep the deep state is. <laughs> We are very, very deep and, in fact, probably little known and little cared about by the listeners is the fact that I spent the t first 10 years of my career as a theater director. Uh, but the only line that from the seagull that comes to my mind at, is at the very beginning uh, where Masha comes on stage and says, I'm in mourning for my life. But maybe that's relevant to all of this. Uh, you know, uh, certainly the, all of us may have a, a little bit of that that feeling. Um, Colin, as you look at this and as you sort of see the landscape, the landscape of the timeline I talked out, there's the financial one. Of course, we've also got other things we don't talk about much, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, emoluments and so forth. Put yourself in the shoes of Mueller for a second. 
Where are you focusing? What is it? What is it that's most important to get at right now? Uh, to get to what Heather elegantly uh, referred to earlier as Rosa's desiderata. <laughs> yeah, or, or, I mean, it's or, a... Colin, it's a variant of the other Chekhov principle of if you if you put a smoking gun on stage in in scene one, someone has to fire the smoking gun by by the end of uh, act yeah. two. It's that. That's almost yeah. it. But it's, if, you, if you pull a gun out of a drawer in the first act, it has to go off in the third A smoking act. gun. That's cl- good. No, it can't this be smoking Trump variant. in the first act. No, come act. on. Rose Otherwise has improved it. it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, well, as she often does with Chekhov. Anyway, Colin. You probably want me to so, quote John Jackson about loaded weapons again, but I'm, I'm not going to. Yeah. You can hope in I vain. Look, I, I, I think the special prosecutor is probably looking at, I mean, I don't have any special insight, but uh, that has is looking at a number of different possible lines of coordination, conspiracy, collusion, whatever uh, you want to look at. I mean, one is the possibility that there were elements of the Trump administration that were witting of, encouraged uh, the hacking, dissemination, leaking of dirt on Hillary. Uh, obviously, the Don Jr. Uh, story from this week speaks directly to that uh, question, but it also goes to the stories that have been around for months about you know, Roger Stone's connections with Guccifer 2.0 and his back channels uh, with WikiLeaks founder Assange. Uh, there was, of course, the bomb, the previous bombshell on collusion from uh, about a week and a half before the Don Jr. stories was the big Wall Street Journal uh, uh, reports about uh, the, uh, the GOP uh, um, uh, guy who uh, basically was trying to get uh, Hillary's 33,000 emails via Russian hackers uh, claiming to be working with uh, Mike Flynn and others on the on the campaign. We don't know whether that's true or not. Uh, but nevertheless, so I think one line is whether uh, the Trump campaign was aware of, encouraged, uh, and a- actively coordinated the you know some aspect of the hacking, leaking part of the story. Uh, the second line of inquiry is is probably uh, on the financial side. Uh, whether there were elements within the campaign uh, that engaged in a financial quid pro quo, whereby uh, they would push candidate Trump to adopt certain positions, and if he became president to adopt certain positions, go softer on Ukraine, go softer on NATO, lift sanctions, uh, in exchange for uh, kickbacks. Uh, These are obviously the allegations um, uh, that have swirled around Rosneft and Carter Page and and Manafort and others. Uh, There's also the possibility uh, that Kushner, uh, you know, may have been involved in some way. There's the meetings he had that he didn't divulge with uh, the Russian banker um, during the transition period. And there's some uh, uh, suggestion that uh, there may have been uh, some uh, financial quid pro quo there as it related to access to uh, Russian uh, capital for uh, some of Kushner's bu- businesses. I have no idea if any of this is true, but I do think there's a line uh, uh, of potential uh, financial uh, quid pro quos that is certainly being investigated. I think the third line, and David, you made reference to this in the McClatchy piece, but it's something that's been going around for a while, is whether there was any coordination between the other part of the Russian uh, a- activities before the election, which was, you know, the trolling, the bots, the social media targeting, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. And, and, you know, however good you think Russian spies are, and they're pretty good, they don't actually know how to micro-target American voters. That's what political campaigns do. Uh, and so the question is, why were all these Facebook feeds of Bernie voters and African-American males in the states that ended up swinging the elections, like Wisconsin and, and Michigan and Pennsylvania, why were there all these spikes in Russian fake news stories uh, in the days and weeks before the election. Was that just a coincidence? Did the Russians know how to do that? Or were they working with elements of the Trump campaign uh, 
to uh, precisely target, micro-target, uh, in an effort to either flip voters or suppress voters uh, in key states. So I think that's a line of inquiry. And then the last but not least, the fourth is the cover-up uh, and the obstruction of justice issues. Uh, you know, uh, did even if, if Trump, the Trump campaign didn't do any of this stuff, uh, uh, and even if President Trump wasn't aware of any of it, uh, did he actively take a steps uh, steps to shut down the investigation, firing Comey being uh, chief among them, but not not the only one. So I think those are at least four lines uh, that uh, the special prosecutor will look, uh, will be looking into. You know, as I listen to all of this, I think, oh, those canny Russians, we are such suckers here, even us in the deep states, supposedly sophisticated, find ourselves wrapped around the axle of this story. And that they didn't really want to elect Trump. They just wanted to mm. weaken the U.S. And if we get into a big political Mission scandal for the next couple of years, uh, and you know, we not only have an idiot as the president of the United States, but we re- render the entire U.S. government that isn't already brain dead, brain dead by focusing on this, and the world becomes the playground of opportunists. Well, David, I'll go you Does one that further, worry? though. Uh, because I, I, I suspect that that's exactly right, that the Russians didn't care about Trump as such, that they just cared about, you know, confusion to our enemies. Uh, anything that sort of messes with the United States is good for them. Uh, and that being said, if if that is in fact the case and I were Vladimir Putin, I would now be thinking my next move is to leak information that is absolutely damning about Donald Trump and that leads to an impeachment and leads to a zillion prosecutions because that's how to really tie up the United States for the next few years to have essentially no a president who's in the process of being impeached and whose family members and close uh, staff members are in the process of being prosecuted. I totally agree with that. But it should also not be forgotten that Putin had a very specific animus toward Hillary. Um, That Hillary as secretary, both he perceived her to be hostile to him and he perceived her femaleness while being hostile to him as a particular problem. And so um, I actually agree that they didn't want to elect Trump, but they wanted to to weaken Clinton as a candidate and as president as much as possible. I'm particularly struck also, David, and it's it's just worth reminding that we've seen this play out in in a number of the Eastern European countries that were that were Russia's first targets for this kind of maneuvering that by by helping us create a society where none of us trust or believe any of the rest of us, um, that's the ultimate goal. And of course, that's something that if you grew up in the Soviet Union, you're, you're very clear-eyed and sophisticated about about how to achieve. So sort of heading into an environment where you know we return to the America of my father's childhood where there was a, a communist under every bed. And we start to see Russian interference both where it is and possibly even where it isn't. And I think the the problem of how we how we get past that is one that is is going to be particularly difficult for those of us who do think there are a lot of places we ought to be seeing uh, the Russian hand. I mean, I think the no, the intelligence community was pretty. Go ahead. Go ahead, David. No, go on. Yeah, I was saying that, you know, as, as someone who was in the Obama administration uh, at the end, uh, the intelligence community was pretty, you know, came to the conclusion pretty early uh, that the Russians kind of had a heads we win, tails you lose approach to this, that that they, like everybody else, probably assumed Hillary was going to win. Uh, so at the very least, they wanted to damage her, uh, wound her going into the election and coming out as president. 
if they really hit the jackpot, uh, they'd get Donald Trump. Uh, and who, even if even if there wasn't, uh, you know, some quid pro quo or compromise, uh, was you know someone who was much more aligned with with uh, Russian values and in particular Putin's values, his skepticism of the of the liberal international order, uh, his his disdain for free freeloading NATO allies and and uh, and all of the rest, and who is someone who is going to be very divisive uh, internationally. And last but not least is what you know uh, we've talked about already, which is that even if all of that doesn't happen, at the very least you create chaos. You create chaos during the election. Uh, you create chaos after the election, and you erode the faith in all the aspects of our democratic institutions, our elections, uh, our press, uh, our ability to have a factual predicate that can be the focal point around which we all have a civil debate, even if it's partisan and we, dis and we disagree. And, you know, it's not like the Russians created any of this, but certainly their maneuvering and influencing and meddling uh, has made it worse. And then we have a president who's made it worse by denigrating the courts and the free press uh, and the intelligence community and the deep state uh, and everything else. So again, we, we, it, it, you, one doesn't have to choose what the Russian objectives were. It was all of the above. Well, the Russians seem to be getting everything that they want. You know, Putin had this meeting. The big deliverable was a ceasefire in Syria, which frankly doesn't benefit us in any way, to the extent that it's a real ceasefire anyway. It really benefits the Russians and the Iranians. Trump gave Putin a big pass on this. Heather, you study these kind of things. You, you, I, I, I would like you, because you you know can speak Russian and can let us know what it is in Russian first and then translate, to, to, to let us in on what do you think the subtext in Putin's brain is right now? Well, I would actually – yeah, I'm, I'm not – so first I am not going to pretend to the subtext of Putin's brain. Um, but they haven't gotten the biggest things that they want, which is um, an end to the sanctions um, and an acquiescence in Ukraine. Um, those are those are the highest priorities, and then moving out from there. Um, the visuals, um, Colin is is right that the visuals in Warsaw are actually something, and in Germany are something that they wanted very badly and got, and that um, in retrospect, we in the the sort of twenty years of post post Cold War consensus foreign policy in the U.S. overstepped in, in denying, which, which was the treating Russia like an equal power on the world stage, which is something that, frankly, we tended to roll our eyes at because Russia is no longer an equal power on the world stage. But that matters enormously. And it matters enormously to Putin's own ability to maintain his own power and ride the twin tigers of his intelligence and military services, which is fundamentally, I guess I am going to go inside his brain, fundamentally what he cares about, because he's got a declining economy that is totally yoked to commodity prices. Um, and so at a very fundamental level, he's thrown in his lot with the intelligence and military to maintain power. He has, you know, reactivated Russian military operations in a way that we hadn't seen in the post-Cold War period. So he's now got – he's got to keep them satisfied and he's got to be able to present something to his public that says, you know, never mind that we are falling further and further behind Western Europe. We are we are regaining Russian pride. You may have seen recently that he um, pointed out that, you know, it was a shame when there was excessive criticism of Stalin. Now, you can pause and ponder to yourself whether there is such a thing as excessive criticism of Stalin. But but that's the mindset 
and that's the that's the kind of unicycle that Putin has set up for himself to to keep riding for power. So, you know, getting Trump to say that he was proud to meet with him um, was an enormous. You know, I I I'm one who can be a bit skeptical about the symbolic, but that was a big big symbol. So Putin gets that, which is great, but he hasn't gotten much on sanctions. And it's now clear with Congress the way it is um, and with the divide, frankly, within the Republican Party and the Trump administration, he's not. He's not going to get a lot on sanctions. And where, honestly, before the election, and, and Colin, I'm curious your view on this, my view was that a Clinton administration was going to find itself very limited in what it could do to get tougher on Russia because Europe would not be interested in getting tougher on Russia. It's now going to be a lot easier for European leaders to unite and get tougher on Russia in opposition to Trump. So in, in a funny way, Putin has has not yet achieved quite as much as as one might imagine, which is why I think Rosa is right that his intelligence people are surely at the very least scenario planning, just as our folks love to scenario plan, about what is the point at which Putin is no longer advantageous. I mean, sorry, Trump is no longer advantageous, Freudian slip of the day. And it might be more more interesting to to move him into uh, the dustbin of history since you, you wanted me to throw in a little a little something Russian there for you. But, you know, this is uh, th here. Th I think that certainly thank you. I, for I think that. And I also want to thank you for the the title of this episode, which is certainly going to be called Putin's Unicycle, um, which, you know, I, I think my that work here is done. Gives us a very. Yes. Right. No, well, don't go just yet. Um, anyway, Colin, you want to say something? Yeah, no, I, picking up on something that Heather said, um, you know, I think Putin can achieve. I totally agree with her that his number one objectives are to resolve the Ukraine issue on, on, uh, you know, on, on, on grounds that are favorable, highly favorable to Moscow, and to get the sanctions lifted. Uh, but where I would diverge a little bit from what Heather says is he doesn't have to accomplish that objective uh, directly. That is, it doesn't have to happen because the United States lifts sanctions. Uh, that, that looks increasingly unlikely. Or that the United States intentionally throws Ukraine under the bus. Um, it can happen indirectly by weakening the connective tissue between the United States and Europe. But one of the things that uh, you know, I experienced firsthand working for the vice president, Vice President Biden, as we dealt with the Ukraine issue on almost every single day, is the amount of handholding we had to do with the Europeans to keep them on board with sanctions and to keep them from throwing Ukraine under the bus. I think what a lot of listeners may not realize is that Europe is very much divided both on whether they should have better relationships with Russia, but whether the Ukraine issue is worth sacrificing business and trade relations with Russia. Uh, you have folks who have tried to hold the line like Merkel, but you have had other countries like Hungary and Italy, et cetera, that just actually, I think actually Putin can achieve a lot of his objectives simply by having a wedge driven, uh, uh, his first one uh, to NATO and now uh, this one to the G20 and to Poland as anything but driving wedges uh, between the United States and uh, the rest of the world, frankly, but in particular uh, in Europe. I mean, we find ourselves isolated on trade and climate. We couldn't even come to an agreement on a North Korea statement. Uh, you know, obviously uh, Trump had this disastrous meeting with Putin, disastrous from our interests, good for Putin. Uh, and he had this trip in Poland where he defined you know, Western values in kind of Christian civilizational and nationalistic terms that are very comfortable not only to the to the right wing government in Poland, but to, uh, you know, to Vladimir Putin's uh, worldview. And even in even when Trump 
talked about Article 5, finally uh, saying that he was committed to Article 5. He only did it after uh, complaining about, uh, you know, beating up the NATO allies for spending more money. And now that they've spent more money, then he can commit to Article 5. So I think if you're Putin you're, 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 and you're playing not even a long game, but a medium game, uh, you have to be pretty happy right now. We've only got a little bit of time here. I, I want to ask uh, two more sets of questions. One, let me go to you, Rosa. We've we've talked about the international context for this a little bit, uh, but it is possible Putin's overplayed his hand here, right? Because if Putin association with Putin, association with Russians, brings down Trump or gravely wounds Trump and gravely wounds those who are associated with the Russians, isn't it possible that we enter into a kind of little Cold War for a few years afterwards where nobody wants to have anything to do with the Russians, <laughs> where Russia is seen as toxic um, by U.S. politicians? I, I think that we were pretty much there pre-Donald Trump, right? And if, if anything, I think uh, uh, the tendency to to inflate Russian global power in our, in our fantasy version of Russia, you know, as, as, as to, to imagine Putin as this genius Machiavellian puppet master uh, and, and to really develop a kind of a new Cold War was in itself, you know, there were some real dangers there. Uh, and I don't think we want that to be resuscitated. Neither, of course, do I think we want to be in a, oh, Vladimir, whatever you want. I love you. I'm so proud to meet with you, Lan. There's, there is something in between. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of thinking, you know, if I'm Putin, if I am aspiring at least to be a, an all-powerful Machiavellian puppet master, I think what I would do is I would select my, my least favorite uh, 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 members of my uh, inner circle, ones who are, are really ripe for a little time in Siberia or prison anyway, I would then announce to the world that uh, I had conducted an internal investigation and discovered that they were responsible for attempting to manipulate the U.S. election and collaborate with Donald Trump, but that they will be promptly executed. And I would apologize profusely for this and, and offer once again my, my services uh, in an international commission of some sort to prevent electoral manipulation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that throws Trump into further chaos, impeachment, prosecution, et cetera, gets rid of someone inconvenient to Putin. And Putin then comes out looking like roses. He says, yes, I'm so sorry. This, you know, one of those terrible thug-like people somehow sneakily did this without my knowledge, but I have, I have, and I, I, I abhor it and I have eliminated them. That is so much the reason why all of our listeners know that it would be really frightening if you were the leader of the world. <laughs> Um, uh, and why you are so essential to the brain trust that has made the deep state what it is. Uh, that, 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 you know, write that down, folks. Let's see what, let's see how close to that. I just want to know that, 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 that I'm not actually attempting to aid and abet an enemy of the United States. I'm just saying. By giving them, right, by giving them nefarious ideas. Okay, well, look, as we wrap this up here, let me pose a question to each one of you. Uh, in one of the great exchanges that we have with our great listeners out there, and I really got to say the deep state nerds are the best listeners of any show, anywhere, radio, podcast. They would be even better the if they sent guys, us money instead of just tweeting nice th things th to us, though, David. Let's, just, let's wow, just keep that in mind. You just can't keep it. You can't <laughs> keep it under control now, can you, Rosa? Yeah. Send Rosa money. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just, just like I've Soupy Sales got the dog got kicked and dog off biscuits. the air. 
Right. Send biscuits to the following address. Now, let's leave that aside for a moment. <laughs> uh, but in one of these exchanges that followed, by the way, the hilarious posting online of somebody's deep state radio bingo card, which I really, I really enjoyed, um, uh, was the idea that maybe what we really ought to have is a kind of fantasy felony league for the Trump administration. Oh, yes. Where you know, where you could pick characters in the administration and they would get points for lies, indictments, uh, incidents of perjury, resignations. Uh, uh, resignations. You'd get a certain number of points for subpoenas. that. Um, being Subpoenas, being named as a co-conspirator, how many times you have to testify. And that then people could pick people and that the winner would be the one who accumulated the, the most points. And and well, you know, or something. But but the question is, in the Felony Fantasy League for the Trump administration, I'd just like to hear who each of you would pick <laughs> to be the ultimate loser slash winner and why. Oh, Rosa. That's such a hard one. There's so many wonderful characters. I mean, I'm not going to be very imaginative, but I would I would just love to see Donald Trump uh, uh, in, you know, prison pajamas, uh, frankly. Ew. I, well, I, okay, ew. sorry. No. I don't think it's going to happen, uh, not least because I am – I would, if I had to put money on it, I would put my money on, you know, too dumb to go to jail because there will never be any actual proof that he has committed a criminal act because his general inconsistency, contradictions, and idiocy will in fact end up being protective because he will be able to show that he had no idea what was going on really at any point in his entire life. Uh, so I think it is unlikely, but it would sure <laughs> be nice. So first, I want to tell your listeners that they, they this is my first time, as you know, in the the headquarters of the deep state and they don't stock air sickness bags here and it's a real problem if you're going to talk about <laughs> Donald Trump in pajamas without stocking air sickness Prison bags. Pajamas. I am I'm not coming back until there are themed air sickness bags here. <laughs> we can arrange that. Uh, okay, count on that. We we want you back Heather so we'll get you the themed air sickness my bag. My candidate for this role is Jared actually. And um I'll, I have a soft spot for Jared. He just looks like such a sweet person i i just i don't yeah, like thinking you're on a, a you're on a roll with having a soft spot for the for the boys um, <laughs> wait a minute but um so here's my my three reasons i nominate jared um number one he is the person that trump will ultimately betray um and he is that that there will be a way that trump can devise for himself rosa the outcome that you laid out and to do that jared will be the one who has to go to prison uh, number two, he does playing kinda... playing that famous that wonderful game called Screw the Jew. But let's keep going. Okay, well, you went there, so I didn't have to. Thank you for that. Um, Except he, I don't think he Don, did inherit. I don't think Trump it. likes Don Jr. at all, and I think he does like Ivanka. So I wonder whether Ivanka can save Jared. Well, except there will come a point where Ivanka will no longer want to save Jared, oh. which which gets me to to sort of oh. point number two here, which is that nice. you have to remember what Jared comes from and the extent to which Ivanka really did, um, as so many of us struggle with, marry her dad. Um, and uh, speak for yourself. Yeah. Okay. So anyhow, moving right along. Um, Jared, you got to remember, dad did time. Um, you know, right. dad did time as part of a messy, convoluted, stupid, and highly corrupt deal. Involving blackmail, prostitutes, and his brother-in-law. There you go. 
Um, so, <laughs> like I say, Jared is, is kind of typecast for this. And part three, um, compared to the, the intellectual heights scaled by Don Jr., I admit that Jared has looked good this week. But it's not at all clear to me that Jared knows how to avoid this fate. So I, I, pay, so I therefore nominate him as my favorite. Aww. Beautiful. Colin, sitting there by the shores of Lake Gitchagumi or whatever the, the lake is called. In the gentle shade of the silo. In the gentle yeah. shade of the silo. <laughs> Who do you pick? You know, I, I, I look, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a fake doctor uh, who teaches at a, a university. I'm not a lawyer like 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 Rosa. Um, and the other caveat I would say is, and this is a more serious one, is I, I think that opponents of Trump have to be cautious to not repeat the lock her up, lock her up, lock her up with chance of lock him up, lock him up. He doesn't have to be locked up. He just has to be in the pajamas. (laughs) Um, But as it relates to any of these folks, um, look, the cast of characters, I think, is is fairly obvious. I think Flynn, Manafort and Kushner uh, are all potentially in trouble for different uh, reasons. Um, And now I think Don Jr. is very much in trouble. I I think that the relevant question for Don Jr. is whether uh, by taking this meeting and by being so gung-ho about getting dirt on on Clinton that was so obviously presented to him as dirt coming from a foreign government, whether uh, he and the other participants in that meeting violated campaign finance laws by soliciting and or accepting something of value from a foreign government. I think that's a big problem. But my guess is that the folks who end up in jail are most likely to end up in jail for lying, uh, for perjury, uh, either lying to Congress, uh, lying on their security forms, uh, uh, or lying to investigators, FBI investigators, uh, at various stages of the uh, investigation. And I think almost everybody on that list is vulnerable to some combination of those campaign finance laws and, and potential perjury issues, depending on what they did or said. And then last but not least is the macro issue of what Trump is, what President Trump himself is most vulnerable to. And there, I, I just think, you know, the more this this looks like uh, actual collusion, the more the obstruction of justice issues uh, could become the political thing that brings him down. A beautiful analysis. So many choices for our fantasy league. I inclined, by the way, to agree with Heather. I think Jared's got an inside track because I think he was over-empowered and overly arrogant. Uh, And I think he may be involved in a number of deals that are not just, by the way, with the Russians, that may also be causes of problems. But certainly Don Jr. and Jared and Manafort and Flynn all sort of are leaders of the pack. Personally, I'd love to see um, Roger Stone at a really, really um, kind of rough uh, 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 institution of rehabilitation um, uh, because of just the downright odiousness of of the guy. Um, but there are going to be plenty to choose from, including, by the way, some Trump lawyers, maybe some other people who are working in the White House right now who are in the midst of cover-ups. Uh, and, and, and we will follow this week after week on Deep State Radio, where because we're the deep state, we actually know already who's going to end up going to jail. We've made our choices and it's going to happen that way. But we're going to play along like we don't uh, and continue to have conversations like this one. I want to thank Heather. I want to thank Colin. I want to thank Rosa. I want to thank all of your spirit animals. And Heather and Colin, you don't have a spirit animal yet. I'm going to rely on our listeners to come up with one for you. Follow Twitter. You'll 
You'll see what I mean by this. And uh, we are glad that all of you could join us for this special emergency edition of Deep State Radio. We will be up with this and the originally scheduled edition very shortly. And we look forward to listening, uh, uh, conversing with you and each other again next week. But before we go, Heather has a classic Russian poetry selection for you to listen to as you think about this episode and hum on the way home. Heather? Okay, so it's it's by this is Lermontov, who was a romantic Russian army officer, led the um, Russian conquest and occupation of the Caucasus in the 19th century. So it's sort of the Russian Old West subduing the Muslim hordes. Is romantic dies terribly young. Let's see. Para moy drug para pakoya serce prosit litiat zadnamidni i kajdi chas unosit chastichku bitia amuista boyft fayom. Oh, my God, that, that makes me want to embrace Vladimir Putin. That was amazing. <laughs> I love it. That was, that was beautiful. And, and roughly, what did, what did that mean there, Heather? Um, it's time, my friend. It's time. The minutes are flying. Um, and then the ending is, the two of us together were preparing to live, and yet suddenly, perhaps like this administration, we die. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am in an undisclosed location. So are all our other guests, because this is an emergency episode of Deep State Radio called by our listeners who demanded, because there is so much chaos <laughs> happening in the world today. Love our Deep State Radio nerds. We love our nerds, and they demanded this, and, and we didn't want to disappoint them. So we have... At one undisclosed location on the Charles River, Ambassador Nicholas Burns of the Kennedy School. And down south of that, in the, to, to some degree or another, we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And we have Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council. And across the Atlantic, in a not-so-undisclosed location, <laughs> we have Corey Shockey of the IISS. So... What are we talking about? We're talking about Rex Tillerson out after a tenure that might be described as one of the least distinguished in the history of the State Department, also one of the shortest in the modern history of the State Department, especially if you don't count the extremely brief tenure of Lawrence Eagleburger as Secretary of State. Um, and we have him being replaced by CIA Director Mike Pompeo. We have changes there. We also now know that Gary Cohn is being replaced by Lawrence Kudlow at the National Economic Council. And there are rumors that there are more changes in foot, that Donald Trump is finally going to get what he describes as the cabinet he wants, which, given that that includes Betsy DeVos and Ryan uh, Zinke and 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 Pruitt and and uh, and Perry and Shulkin and Carson, you can only imagine what's in his mind for an ideal cabinet. Anyway, Nick, you've been in situations like this before. You've watched changes happen. Um, you've seen State Departments go from good to bad and 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 and, and from bad to good. What's your take on what's just happened? 
Well, I think you have to assess, David, uh, Rex Tillerson's tenure was troubled. Uh, on the one hand, um, he completely mismanaged the men and women of the Foreign Service and Civil Service. These are people who are career. They want to serve. They're, they're accustomed to serving presidents of both parties. They want to do their job. They want to be trusted. He came in and summarily fired the sen uh, four or five most senior of our Foreign Service officers last February. And then, of course, he proposed a 30% budget reduction and then didn't fill the majority of our ambassadorships. And so today we have no American ambassador in Berlin, in Ankara, or in Seoul, just to name three capitals, and didn't bring the Foreign Service into, into, his, into his world and tried to manage it from afar. And it was a disaster, repudiated by Republicans on the Hill as well as Democrats. I would say in his defense, not on that issue, but in terms of his record, I think he was a voice of reason in a lot of ways. He teamed up with Jim Mattis at defense to be a blocking force of the, wor of the worst impulses of President Trump. He, was, um, he argued for a continuation of the United States in the Iran nuclear deal. He argued for a diplomatic opening, some kind of beginning of talks with North Korea. He argued for us to stay in the Paris Climate Change Agreement. And he also argued that the United States ought to stay um, as, as part of the leadership of NATO and shouldn't uh, try to wage war in the EU, all of which were countermanded by President Trump. So if we're looking past Secretary Tillerson at a secretary-designated Pompeo, in a way, the State Department won't miss the management of Rex Tillerson, but we may miss his rational, middle-of-the-road voice if the change is going to be Mike Pompeo. Well, Corey, I think that's, a, a, as one would expect from Nick, that's an excellent analysis of the situation, which essentially comes down to Rex Tillerson may have been the worst secretary of state in, in recent history, and we may miss him soon because, <laughs> because, right. Pom because Pompeo has been chosen not for his brains, which are formidable, um, but because of the fact that he has the one trait that Donald Trump looks for in a cabinet, cabinet secretary, and that is he seems to like Donald Trump and he's willing to play things the way Donald Trump plays things. And, um, you know, this has led when, when, when he's been at the uh, tenure at the agency to people feeling that sometimes he would put his thumb on the scale for political reasons, which is a big no-no in the world of intelligence. And so I'm, I'm wondering, what do you expect from Pompeo? So I have a much more positive view of Pompeo's role as director of central intelligence and of his potential as secretary of state than it sounds like either you or Nick do. Um, it's true that, that as director of central intelligence, uh, he was very buddy-buddy with the president. But two things. Thing one, he's a politician, and so um, that he is a backslapping, glad-handing, get-along-with-other-politicians kind of guy, I don't think is uh, necessarily a character flaw or a professional failure. Um, moreover, one of the big reasons that Secretary Tillerson was completely ineffective was that he never managed to establish any kind of relationship with the President of the United States. And uh, as for supporting the president's policies, you know, I'm a little bit um, sympathetic to the view that only one of these guys got elected president, and he has the right to 
gather around himself a cabinet of people who will carry out the policies that he campaigned on. Uh, even though, as you guys know, I, I don't like those policies. I think they're bad for our country. Um, the last thing I will say about Pompeo is that, you know, he didn't sycophantically go along with the president. When the president impugned the integrity of the intelligence community or said things, for example, about the intelligence community's conclusions about Russia's interference in our election, it's true that he didn't walk out in front of a bank of TV cameras and, and contradict the president of the United States. But he did always issue a written statement clarifying what the CIA had assessed and concluded and establishing the baseline truth. And what I have noticed about people in the Trump administration who are able to differ from the president's views and keep their jobs is that that's the way they navigate an erratic president um, and try and maintain their own integrity. Well, as you do every week, Corey, you have brushed up that tiara of optimism. Given us oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I do have one more optimistic thing to add to that, which wow. is that I have not heard a gnashing of teeth out of people in the intelligence community in his time as the director of central intelligence. Nothing near to the complaints that foreign service officers and civil servants in the State Department had about Rex Tillerson. Um, Pompeo has been a soldier and I suspect is good at the basic leadership stuff that Tillerson appeared to be such a catastrophe at in the State Department. All right, well, let's yeah. get a couple. Let's get a I couple. I can jump in on that, actually, if I'm allowed. Of course you're allowed, that's why you're here. <laughs> but you're in charge, so I don't wanna okay. be. Well, I permit, I, I permit you. Okay, um, <laughs> I, because because I, I the the one piece of data, you know, I went out to ask some folks that I knew who were Republicans who were in touch with rank and file in the agency in the CIA to find out, you know, how is he as a manager? Because as Nick aptly mentioned, very in the very beginning, you know, the biggest weakness, the most public weakness of the outgoing secretary of Tillerson was that he was a horrendous manager. And what I heard coming back was that actually at the agency, he's done a good job listening to the people. So I think that that is, I would agree, I just want to kind of um, polish Corey's um, tiara of optimism with this kind of um, additional piece of data, you know, that the people inside the building because I think from the outside world, a lot of us, especially those of us who worked on the Hill and watched Porter Goss, who was another House member, uh, also happened to be a Republican, joining a Republican administration to run the CIA, very political guy, got up there and he was a disaster. He was overly political. He was almost hostile to the workforce. And by all accounts, Porter Goss did not follow, uh, sorry, um, Mike Pompeo did not follow in Porter Goss's steps, footsteps. Okay, well, that's certainly that's certainly a plus. Ed, just give us your your take here on the on the very end of this, and then I'm going to segue over to you, and then back to Nick um, about one of the proximate causes of this, which seemed to be Tillerson's comments about the Russian attacks in the UK, and then I want to talk about Theresa May's response to that. 
Uh, indeed. Well, look, I'd share, I'd share the general view that, um, you know, he was uh, one of the worst secretaries of state ever. And um, boy, are we going to miss him. Um, but I would I would like to sort of perhaps tarnish, <laughs> tarnish the tiara of optimism a little bit there in that, you know, the plus side, the boy that we're, we're going to miss him element to this is uh, that he was one of the few people within uh, Trump's uh, orbit who was prepared to stand up to him and to disagree with him, you know, notwithstanding all the terrible managerial record that he had at the State Department and the, and the really sort of unparalleled bad legacy he leaves inside that building. Uh, and the fact that Pompeo might, you know, could hardly fail to be an improvement on that measure. Nevertheless, Tillerson was, was uh, had the spine to stand up to Trump, um, disagree with him, and, you know, tolerate being dissed by him on Twitter and in other fora by the president consistently and still carry on doing his job. And there are precious few of those left. One obvious one is the Defence Secretary, Jim Mattis. It's hard to, I, I wouldn't put H.R. McMaster in that category, certainly wouldn't put General Kelly in that category. We've got, and, and Pompeo, I don't think, fits in that category either. So I, I think for the world, if you're looking at this from the point of view of the rest of the world, it is rather an ominous, it is rather an ominous development. Pompeo is, as opposed to the Iran nuclear deal, as Trump, uh, he um, uh, is certainly um, not diplomatic in terms of how he speaks about Muslims and the Muslim world. He's all gung ho for Guantanamo Bay and enhanced interrogation techniques. Um, and I could go on. Um, uh, so I, 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 I don't, I, I, I don't feel like um, burnishing the tiara of, of optimism. And, and Evelyn and and. Uh, Corey did a wonderful job. They did the best possible job in burnishing it. But um, uh, I don't think it's merited, honestly. Well, let me make you feel a little better, Ed, because I want to turn to Nick and I'm going to ask him something. And I suspect part of his question will at least make you feel a little better about your own country. Because one of the things that was approximate cause for this was this um, uh, terrorist attack by the Russians using a nerve agent on a former Russian agent and his daughter, but that affected scores of other people in England. And Rex Tillerson essentially said this kind of thing can't stand and was fired 14 hours later. And uh, the president hasn't really spoken out in any meaningful way against this. He said maybe something and, and some sort of thing on his way to a helicopter, but he hasn't done anything about it. And now today, Theresa May has kicked out, I think, 23 uh, Russian diplomats, taken very strong action, said that it was definitely um, the Russians, um, and uh, actually behaved as a leader should behave in this kind of situation. And others in Europe, including Donald Tusk, um, uh, have, have supported that. And the United States has remained silent. Nick, I was just wondering... You know, do you see this as a proximate cause of what led to Tillerson's downfall? And, you know, how do you explain it? Well, the president, you know, typically revealed himself the other day, yesterday, when he said that they weren't in the same wavelength. And he specifically cited uh, the fact that he and Tillerson disagreed on the Iran nuclear deal. But I think it was a series of issues over time where, where as Ed says, Tillerson had the guts to speak back and, and do what cabinet officers are supposed to do. Show loyalty 
but also tell the president when they think the president's heading down the wrong path. And this president doesn't seem to like that. It was interesting as well, David. He said that the biggest selling, selling point for Pompeo is that they're on the same wavelength, i.e. they never disagree. That's a little bit troubling. You do want a secretary of state to push back. Russia, I think, David, has been, in my judgment, the greatest foreign policy failure of the Trump presidency and where he's been weakest, and it's where we need to be strongest. You've had the fact that the Russians launched this conspiracy against our election, zero response from the president, leaving our states undefended, and frankly, leaving a lot of the European allies in the wake as well, because they've had their elections affected. And now this nerve agent attack, nothing could be more clear than that the United States has to stand besides Britain, our closest friend in the world. You have, all, you have this attack on Salisbury, England, not just on the former KGB agent, Mr. Skripal and his daughter, but on citizens of Salisbury. The prime minister, I watched her in, in, um, in question time today at the House of Commons. She could not have been more clear that Britain is looking for the open support of her NATO allies, is what she said. Silence from the president of the United States. Our ambassador to NATO, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, put out a very good statement. Other Americans lower down the chain have said the right thing. But the president is silent. And he's had many bites at this apple over the last 24 hours. He'll have more today in Missouri. But the fact that the United States president can't come out and support the United Kingdom and encourage the other NATO allies to sanction Russia, expel Russian diplomats, keep certain Russians out of our countries, it's, it's just shameful. And you cannot imagine Ronald Reagan, for instance, just to name a Republican president or Dwight D. Eisenhower or either of the Bushes, passing up this opportunity to do what's, what is natural for an American leader, and that's to be the leader of the West. And I think in the past 14 months, Trump has given up that role. It's now being played by Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel and today, Theresa May. And that's sad for an American to reflect about. It's hard to imagine any American president behaving this way. It is. I mean, you, you go back, um, you go back to all the way to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the creation of modern America as a superpower. All of our presidents in both parties have understood that we're head of an alliance in both the Atlantic sphere and also in Asia, that you have to be consistently supportive of your allies, especially when your number one adversary in the world, Vladimir Putin, seeks to undermine, directly challenge the sovereignty and security of, in this case, the United Kingdom. And, you know, I think that so many people have just, we're so tired of Donald Trump not doing the right thing. He gets a pass. There hasn't been enough criticism from people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell because they believe what all of us believe, and that is the United States has to act in defense of its allies. But somehow this president gets a pass, and that's a very dangerous thing for us to allow to happen. Well, I, I, you know, I'm wondering, Corey, what are the institutional consequences of this? The, clearly, the Atlantic Alliance is weakened by having an American president like this. Most of what an alliance does is not actually fighting wars. Most of what an alliance does is act in unison to send a common message. And if the most powerful member of the alliance won't do it, a lot of the effectiveness of the alliance and sort of you know, 95% of what an alliance does is diminished. Isn't that true? And, and and is there a sense in the UK and as you're dealing with people across Europe right now of, uh, you know, of the deeper problem here, which is not personality shuffles in the White House, 
a personality shuffles in the administration. It's that the president of the United States is largely the one who has led people like Tillerson and Pompeo to have these policies. So I agree with your assessment that the president is the problem. And I agree with Nick's assessment um, of the president's failures and of Republicans' failures in covering for the president. I myself was greatly relieved today to see uh, Chuck Schumer, minority leader in the Senate, Ben Sass, a Republican from Nebraska, and others start to issue statements that sounded more presidential than our president sounds. Um, and I think there are time, there are cartoon characters that sound more presidential than our president sounds. I mean, uh, there's there's I have inanimate objects. I'm looking at a stuffed owl in my office. More presidential than the president. Uh, yes. Athena's witness in your office. I'm so glad to hear it, David. That's that's good. Um, I, I, I think it is important at a time where the president is failing to be a clarion voice for the West, for our friends and our enemies to hear a wide breadth of other American voices and to understand how bipartisan support for Britain uh, in responding to this attack by the Russians is, uh, how much routine police and intelligence and foreign policy and defense policy and treasury department interaction there is where you know, the British government, the British police are now going to reopen 14 additional cases of suspicion, suspicious Russian deaths in Britain. And, and I am confident that the United States and all the other NATO allies are going to be helping the British sleuth through this. Democracies are slow to organize. They're slow to acknowledge the state of the threat. Um, but there's actually a lot that's good that What's happening, right? Like NATO made an important statement today of solidarity. Uh, the my, the British worded the prime minister's statement in such a way that it didn't uh, trigger a NATO Article Five uh, conversation because it actually wasn't an armed attack on a NATO ally. But it, as Nick knows better than any of us, it did trigger an Article 4 conversation, which will very right. soon start happening, and showing the cooperative reaction of allies and the strength of allies, I think is a really positive message. We should drag the Russians into the NATO-Russia Council and ask them to explain themselves. We should... Uh, we, sh we have three huge advantages that we don't use often enough. Transparency, allies, and institutions. We ought to go to the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons and ask them to set up an independent panel to look at the chemical weapon that was used. We should allow the British and the Russians to be present when it happens, but probably not either of them sit on the panel. The only thing that, I, that really grieves me uh, beyond what Nick and you have already pointed out, David, is that after September 11th, the British prime minister took the initiative and the British government fanned out across the world and got allies doing uh, helpful things for the United States. It got NATO's first invocation of Article 5 when we didn't even ask for it. 
They got the United Nations Security Council acting in constructive ways. And I grieve that our country is not taking that kind of leadership for our closest friends right now. Yeah, well, that's clearly true. And both, both of you have made great points here. Ed, you wrote a terrific column. You write many terrific columns. Your most recent column, I thought, was especially um, on target. And it, it it addresses a different aspect of U.S. national security. Donald Trump has said, I want a cabinet that, you know, is that I'm comfortable with, that looks like me. And essentially what he's trying to do, I think, is get to one um, that is more comfortable for him and where people don't stand up to him. And I think as a consequence of that, you make the point that that Secretary Mattis and 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 Robert Mueller are now sort of pivotal to U.S. national security because they remain among the very few in-place counterbalances to the impulses, sometimes destructive impulses, of this administration. I thought it might be a good opportunity for you to elaborate on that. Well, thank you for your kind words. I mean, their, their, their job security, I think the way I put it is now, as in uh, Mueller and, and um, uh, Mattis' job security, is now indistinguishable from America's national security. Um, the, I just want to add a point, though, to the very eloquent suggestions uh, made by Corey and by Nick on, on the British-American uh, apparent divide over this Russian nerve gas um, a, a attack. You know, if Britain... If Britain finds itself relatively, relatively alone um, in terms of what it can do um, over and above this expulsion of, of Russian intelligence agencies, uh, agents uh, or diplomats, um, there is one point of massive leverage that Britain and the United States have over Russia, and that is the extraordinary amount of Russian money that is invested in the British property market, in, uh, in British assets, in, in yachts, um, children at prep schools and so forth, with no beneficial owner. Now, most countries mandate having the beneficial owner, the ultimate owner of, a, of an asset being named. Most countries require that by law. Britain and the United States do not. There was a Treasury Department report three years ago that estimates that $300 billion of Russian laundered money comes into the United States every single year, every single year. Um, this is leverage. This is huge leverage. If you remember the Panama Papers, Putin took that personally. He thought Hillary had arranged them to be leaked. Um, uh, that showed up billions of dollars that have been transferred by places like Cyprus, um, to Putin's, um, uh, uh, to Putin, and no sign of that money being repaid. These are sort of fake loans from from various Russian entities. Um, this is an enormous point of leverage. Corey mentioned transparency. Um, the transparency we, as as the two uh, sort of English speaking um, dirty money democracies, can bring to bear if we change our ways. Um, uh, is absolutely enormous. Now, the fact is, I don't think Donald Trump would want to, but others, um, for very personal reasons, but I think others can really press on that. And that's another reason why, why we should all be rooting very strongly for Robert Mueller, not just to keep his job, but to do his job to the fullest of his abilities. This is a, a deeply important question of national and transatlantic security. So, Evelyn, I, you know, I mean, I think Ed has made a great point here and one that actually 
is not aired that often in terms of the leverage that we've got. But the matter seems to be somewhat complicated by the fact that Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and a lot of people in and around that administration, Wilbur Ross, seem to love that dirty money game, seem to have a lot of skin in that dirty money game, uh, and don't seem to be the ones who are going to go and and make a change on this. Uh, and that maybe, once again, because of who we've got in leadership in, in Washington, the lead is going to have to come from someplace else. I'm just wondering what your take is. Well, I mean, yeah, I, look, I, I agree with uh, everything everyone else said. And there are a whole list of other things that we could do in concert with our British allies. And I would I would just make a point that we also have a, prob a probable Russian assassination that occurred here in Washington, D.C. in 2015 in a, in, a, in, a, in a hotel in DuPont Circle in Washington, I've already said in Washington, D.C., of Mikhail Lesson, uh, a former um, really right-hand man in the media world of Putin who fell out with him and ended up dead under suspicious circumstances here. So we certainly could cite that also as a reason for feeling, you know, uh, our own in patriotic national affront at the Russian assault uh, of the British sovereignty, and again, probably our sovereignty in that instance as well. Um, but with regard to the dealing with corruption and transparency in the United States, I absolutely agree. There, there, there are people on the Hill, so members of Congress have drafted legislation addressing this, addressing the the lack of transparency with regard to beneficial ownership, so ownership of LLCs and other entities. They've drafted legislation to make it very clear that money flows need to be um, attributed. I mean, there's a, there, there is a raft of legislation that is, frankly speaking, outside of my area of expertise that has been proposed. But for whatever reason, it's not being actually ushered through. And that's something Congress could do. You don't, I mean, the president ultimately would have to sign it, much as he was forced to sign the sanctions legislation, but it could be signed. And, you know, I would say that Congress needs to put him to the test. But again, we also face a deficit of leadership, sadly speaking, on the side of the majority party uh, running Congress these days. Uh, yeah, well, that's that's for sure. They're all part of a kind of a symbiotic uh, relationship that, you know, feathers their nest and that of their friends and doesn't do much, much else. You know, Nick, I get a little frustrated. You know, we have to have an emergency podcast here because the news happens so fast. And in fact, yesterday, you know, I was like busy with this Tillerson news all day long and talking to different media outlets and writing stuff and so forth. And then I had to rush up to New York and, and, you know, that got, was asked to go to a TV studio at 10 o'clock to be on a TV show and I got to the studio and heavy breathing and I walk in and we're already on to the next story, you know, and it was, we were into the Pennsylvania primary and we, and the Tillerson yeah. segment got bumped. It was, <laughs> I traveled 300 miles and I got <laughs> wow. that. And, and, it, and it was like, oh yeah, well, no, we're, we're not going to, and they, you know, gave me a car and everything. They were the ones that got me there. And it was like, no, nah, we're, we, we can't do it. We have to focus on this Pennsylvania race. And then, David, you know, this you should name and shame the TV. Uh, no, no, because it's probably my network and Nick's network. Oh, sorry. Okay. No, <laughs> it, it, it is because that's the, yeah. only, that's, that's the one I'm on all the time too. But, but, but it was like, okay. And I, I smiled and walked out of there, but it, this is just what happens in this day and age. And this morning it's, 
Larry Kudlow, or today it's Larry Kudlow, um, who's just, you know, let's let's pick an economic advisor because he plays one on television. Just a kind of a, 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 you know, really radically bad choice as National Economic Council and a, and a step down. But I want to get ahead of the news. And it seems really likely that H.R. McMaster is going to go. Now, we've talked a little bit about, you know, different candidates and, you know, there is a kind of school of thought that maybe somebody sane like Steve Began is going to go and become the national uh, security advisor. But there's been a lot of thought uh, and, a, and a little more buzz recently about John Bolton again. And 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 I, I, I want to relay to you that I, I saw a little story this morning about a from a journalist who asked somebody in the White House, well, if John Bolton becomes the national security advisor, will he have to shave his mustache? Uh, because, because the president doesn't It's not like, the look the president wants. The president doesn't like mustaches. A and guy the, with that hairstyle is commenting on other people's stylistic choices? Well, wow. you know. But, but, Corey, but, Corey, you're not about to get back, get back into 1970s porn actors. I <laughs> Well, I'll tell you something that the, the, the reporter was talking to the White House source on this, asked whether he'd have to shave it. And the White House source didn't laugh. The White House source said, well, I just don't know. But but that's a sensitive subject. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Um, but it was also not like an out-and-out -out denial of the, of the fact that Bolton is in the running. Now, personally, I don't want to color your view here. Personally, I would take Bolton's mustache as national security advisor over Bolton himself. He can go. <laughs> we can put the mustache in that office in the West Wing. But I'm just wondering, <laughs> as as we look forward, you know, to change in the office of the national security advisor. At the same time, there is change in the office of the head of the CIA. At the same time that there is change in the State Department. And that change may not happen as quick as people want because there may be some confirmation issues and so forth. And we're about to launch into this thing with North Korea and we've got all this other sensitive stuff going on. Um, isn't just the change itself a formula for disaster? And do you have an opinion on the National Security Advisor? Well, it could be. And, and, and David, both you and I have worked at the NSC, and we've seen how critical that position has become in, in modern times. It's, it's the cockpit of the Western world, if you will. It's the central organizing office. And I think most of our successful modern presidents have understood that you really need to put together a team here. It's not just appointing individual by a individual, Mattis and Haspel and Pompeo, but how is the team going to gel or not gel? And the most successful administrations have been administrations when the president is self-confident and skillful. You don't have that here. The president is willing to delegate major parts of the job to, uh, of, of, of the foreign policy job to the secretary of state and defense. You don't really have that either, although that could change under, under Pompeo. And it could continue to be, I think, a good relationship between the president and Jim Mattis at defense, but you need that key person at NSC. I hope it's Steve Began, if that's if it comes down to Steve Began versus John Bolton. Steve is a professional. He was chief of staff of the NSC for Condi Rice when she was NSC advisor. He is He's someone who's focused a lot on Russia in his career and is very tough-minded about the Russians. He also, due to his experience as vice president of Ford, a motor company, a big position for Ford, knows a lot about trade. 
and I think has a very sophisticated view of, of how trade works in the modern world, has not always been in favor of these big multilateral agreements where he and I have diverged, but I respect his knowledge. John Bolton I know quite well. I worked with him when I was under Secretary of State. He was the ambassador to the UN. Um, one of my jobs was to send him his instructions every day. That's how the State Department works. And um, how did I that work? For, how did that go it, for you? It worked very badly. Uh, John Bolton uh, is someone who's extraordinarily aggressive about the use of American power. He's dismissive of our allies. He's hooked on um, the military, uh, the use of force as the primary instrument of what we should be doing in the world. I don't think he'd work well, if I can say this, with Secretary Mattis or Secretary Pompeo. I don't think he has the personality to subordinate himself. I mean, I think a lot of us who I work, who work for Brent Scowcroft, I worked for Brent for nearly three years in the Bush 41 administration, see him as the model, someone who is self-effacing, who served the president loyally, but who understood that the major cabinet officers had to have precedence, but also who built a team. I don't see John Bolton doing that. And David, look what's right down the pike. You have uh, this week, the president, at least as of today, shamefully silent uh, in supporting Britain on the nerve, uh, the nerve agent attack. You have the decision by mid-May on whether or not the United States is in the Iran nuclear deal for good or out. And it looks like we may be heading out if the president and Mike Pompeo will have their way. That's going to that's gonna be tremendously costly. It'll harm our relations further with the Germans, French, and British. I think it also makes the opening to North Korea much more problematic because if you're Kim Jong-un, you look at an American president who is not willing to meet American commitments very seriously undertaken by President Obama on the Iran side, how likely is it he's going to want to make a deal with the United States knowing that President Trump doesn't honor deals? And then you have the opening, this possible opening to North Korea itself. I actually think that there's an argument to have expedited confirmation hearings for Mike Pompeo because you need him to go out in advance of the president to determine if Kim is actually serious about denuclearization. After all, we only have this through one visit to Pyongyang by two South Korean senior officials. I think Pompeo's gonna need to advance this. You need a good team. And it's not and, it's, it's not the time to change every member of your national security well, and also team, you, or you, nearly every member. You, you, don't, you don't have the bench, right? I mean, I think six of the t eight or 10 top slots in the State Department are still open. You, That's you right. Have you have five undersecretaries, and right now you have um, you have exactly one was fired yesterday. Tom Shannon's the only undersecretary, and he's going to be leaving government very soon. And of your of your managers at the State Department, about the twenty odd uh, assistant secretaries, you have maybe a quarter of them filled. Of your major ambassadorships, uh, the majority unfilled. This is a ghost ship in the State Department, and you're taking on North Korea, Iran, and containment of Russia at the same time. This is no time to bring John Bolton into the NSC. Well, we certainly agree on that. But, Corey, the scenario that we're describing here, uh, that Nick very effectively described, um, is, is more troubling to me based on sort of what's likely. It's not likely that... Um, you know, you're going to have massive transformation of all these people in the next couple of months. And if that's the case, Pompeo views part of his mandate, I think, as 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 blowing up this Iran deal. Uh, I think the, the the president specifically said that, as Nick said, as one of the reasons he's in there. If he does that, obviously tensions flare in that part of the world. At the same time, if he does that, as Nick points out, 
the North Korea, who, why would North Korea sign a deal with the United States when it's blowing up another deal? Um, so, 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 you know, tensions are likely to flare there. And with Mueller hot on the trail of Trump and Trump looking for distraction, um, it, it gets you into a world that's very dangerous and full of wag the dog temptations. Uh, so, yes, I agree. We are in a world that is very, very dangerous and full of wag the dog temptations. I am less concerned about that particular dynamic than I think you and others are, David, because um, I actually think the president's a, um, strongly disinclined to use military force. He has not uh, sustained the red line he established about Syrian chemical weapons use, uh, despite clear evidence that the, that the Syrian government on at least four occasions has used chemical weapons since President Trump uh, made such a show of enforcing that red line. Moreover, when selecting among options for how to respond when the president did respond a year or so ago, um, he chose the least provocative of them. So I actually think this is one more this is likelier to be a case where the president talks tough and does too little and so creates, as President Obama created, a gap between our policies and what we are actually willing to do. And so, so I think that is the greater likelihood of downside risk in this moment. Um, I, have a, I have a practical question that I honestly don't know the answer to. Does a member, does somebody being confirmed for one senior job in the administration allow them to make a lateral move to another department without confirmation? No. That is, Pompeo's, no. okay. No. Okay, so he is going to go through confirmation hearings. Yes. So he is, and Rand Paul has already said that he will oppose the nomination, and John McCain is not there. So both... Um, Pompeo and uh, Gina uh, Haspel uh, are in trouble. And of course, she has all the baggage associated with torture and waterboarding. Pompeo got confirmed, I think, at the CIA with 14 Democratic votes. So even if Rand Paul doesn't support him, he might get through. But I, I think, you know, potentially her nomination uh, is not a is not a slam dunk. Evelyn, I don't know if you have an opinion on her nomination. Well, I don't I don't know her personally, and though I was working on the Hill during that time period, at the very end when when the tapes were destroyed, so that's a separate issue from the torture per se, it's the destruction of the evidence of the torture. Um, so one 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 problem with her is that she oversaw, directly oversaw one of the black facilities in Thailand where they conducted torture. And the second one is that after it was discovered by Congress that there were tapes that the CIA had made of the interrogations, which included, of course, recording of the torture, she was the person who signed off on the directive to destroy the tapes, which went counter to what Congress had directed. So those are two troubling issues. Um, I am told that she is very well regarded by rank-and-file CIA, as well as Obama-era officials who oversaw her, who worked with her. 
Um, but those are tough things. And the fact that the president himself has this terrible track record when it comes to the issue of torture, whereby he's basically said that if it weren't for Secretary Mattis, he would be fine with it and our government would be torturing again. I mean, in effect, that's what he said. He said, I'll leave it up to my secretary of defense. Um, of course, there are laws against torture, so it's not quite so simple. I'm being a little flip. But the president himself, as we know, has made several utterances in favor of torture, more or less. She, if she is to succeed, really will have to come out and, and I think, directly address those two concerns in public and then, of course, in the closed classified hearings that the intelligence committees will have in her case. Okay, we've only got a couple of minutes here. So I'm going to ask you a question, Ed, then I'm going to go around to everybody with a 30-second uh, answer, and then we'll then we'll wrap ourselves up. But Ed, you know, coming as you do from having actually worked with, with the Treasury Department and, and, and being at the Financial Times, I do think we need to make some kind of a comment here on the Larry Kudlow pick. Uh, Kudlow, of course, has, you know, got a history, worked in the Reagan administration, and um, was the chief economist at Bear Stearns. Uh, and then he was a TV commentator. He also had some drug problems and uh, he doesn't have an advanced degree in economics. And, you know, there's 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 a lot of criticism of him being a kind of an erratic character. Um, but I, I'm wondering if you'd sort of take a step back and sort of say, well, Gary Cohn was a stabilizing force on on a lot of these issues like trade. Tillerson stabilizing force on issues like trade. While uh, Kudlow had a record in this regard, he's obviously had to sort of give that up to come in, given where the president is. Our, our, you know, we don't talk as much about the international economic side, but with the Peter Navarros and the Wilbur Rosses uh, seemingly in the ascendancy, this sort of advent of nationalist economic policy seems like it's likely to accelerate and deepen. Is that your view? Uh, it's certainly my view. I mean, Kudlow, as you know, uh, originally opposed, uh, he's enough of, economist, uh, of an economist to have opposed Trump's tariff measures on steel and, I have to say this word again, aluminium. Um, Thank you. Hearts are fluttering all across <laughs> the deep state nerds. The deep state nerds are all going to adjust how they say this. <laughs> well, Corey, it's a matter of time before you start pronouncing it that way. Um, but I mean, Kudlow, Larry Kudlow changed his view and said, oh, well, you know, perhaps it's a good bargaining chip to get other countries to be more open on trade. And Trump, you know, um, said publicly that that was enough. You know, they, they're, they're a meeting of minds. It could have been worse. You know, I mean, Trump could have drafted in Stephen Moore, for example, or indeed at one point he was considering Peter Navarro. Um, as head of the National Economic Council. You know, I do think the key job here is one that the person in that job is not performing, and that is Treasury Secretary, um, It's it's uh, which Steve Mnuchin uh, inhabits. Um, he's treating it as a cheerleading role. As you know, it's his job um, to deal with the sanctions side of, Americans, uh, of U.S. policy um, and uh, the Russia sanctions, have not yet um, been put in place. They were passed months ago by Congress. The administration then announces this sort of comical Forbes richest Russian list, and we've heard nothing of it since. Um, the Trump administration, and this obviously comes from the top, is doing nothing um, to follow up on these sanctions. And, and you know, that's Steve Mnuchin's job. 
Um, so, uh, you know, if any of my colleagues happen to be, or myself, interviewing him in the coming days, that would be my first question. I have no idea whether Larry Kudlow has the sort of um, interagency skills, I doubt it, but the, the experience to be a neutral channel of advice across the administration, as well as an advocate of a position, it's a difficult balancing act for anybody in, in the NEC or the NSA role. Um, but I do think um, it could have been worse. <laughs> it could have well, been Lou Dobbs. Yeah, yeah, well, we, we, that's where we're going with this thing. I think Steve Mnuchin's replacement will be Maria Bartiromo. But, you know, we'll, get, we'll just get deep. That is an entirely plausible theory, David. Yeah, no, it, it is entirely. So let me give you each, just because so much has happened, a little 30-second question on different subjects, and then we'll wrap up. And let me go back to you, Nick. Give me two or three pieces of advice for Mike Pompeo. I think he's got a real opportunity to re-engage the State Department workforce, the career civil and foreign service, by showing support for them, by convincing Trump and uh, Mick Mulvaney, the OMB director, to raise the budget, to appoint senior diplomats. This is an open door for him, and the department will work very loyally for him if he would show that kind of support first. Second, uh, his biggest test is going to be North Korea. That's why I think he should be, con if he's going to be confirmed, his hearing should be sell, uh, held early. And obviously he's read in on that as CIA director. He knows the issue well. That's an important test to show that he not only believes in American might, and he has a good record of being strong on defense, but can he be a creative diplomat? Tillerson had a very interesting way of looking at that as he, as he talked about North Korea. He said, we're not going into negotiations. We're going to have talks about talks. That could go on for months. That's a good thing to keep us away from war, to establish some kind of dialogue with this mysterious, isolated regime in Pyongyang. I think that'll be his early test to focus on. Excellent. Corey, I'm going to ask you to do something I know you're a little reluctant to do, but, but, but give it a shot. I think, you know, the Secretary of Defense is sort of alone on Mattis Island. You know, he's alone on a Delta Island here. Tillerson was kind of his buddy in the mix here, although he's got a relationship with Kelly. He's got to be feeling a little isolated these days. Now, one of the things that Mattis has done, which Tillerson never did, uh, and it's in part because he came up through the system, is he's maintained the department as his base. He's got the department with him. He uses the department as a form of leverage. Um, but still, he's got to feel a little isolated in the in the midst of all these shifts. And I'm wondering what, what you think that effect will be. Uh, the Secretary of All Defense can easily speak for himself, and I wouldn't presume to do so. Uh, well, having I said that, what do you think the effect of the changes around him will be on his role? Uh, you know, I, as far as I know, the Secretary of Defense didn't know the former Secretary of State before they started working together, and they managed to establish a good, solid working relationship to to talk through policy differences and to try and craft common approaches. And I think Jim Mattis is smart enough and professional enough to find ways to do that all over the place. Um, so I doubt he is feeling alone on Mattis Island, not least because, as you suggest, he's surrounded by a million three hundred thousand of his voters, that is, the women and men of the Department of Defense. My sense is that that losing Tillerson uh, may 
shift the balance on policies in the administration, but I'm not entirely convinced of that. It's not clear to me that Tillerson, so, so I agree with what someone said earlier that Tillerson was on the right side of very many of these arguments. I do not believe that mattered at all in the president's decisions on these arguments. So I'm not sure he's a loss. I'm not sure Tillerson, uh, Pompeo won't be a net gain by being smart enough to navigate dealing with the president in a way that uh, achieves objectives. Ed, what do you think the next big personnel change is going to be and how far does this go? I mean, you know, we're in this period of remarkable turmoil. Is he going to change McMaster, change Shulkin at VA? There's rumors that Shulkin will be replaced by Perry. Um, are there other people you think are on the outs? Can this stabilize? Um, you know, and, you know, it does, I mean, it's the 32nd question, but I mean, wh where do you think this is going to lead as Trump seems to be buying into the notion that his greatest success will be if he, if he lets Trump be Trump? Uh, that he certainly does seem to be buying into that notion. And I doubt the, you know, Pennsylvania shock uh, the lamb, the lamb not going to the slaughter, um, is is going to have changed his mind on on his sort of general feeling of uh, Trumpiness. Um, uh, you know, I, I, we 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 are about due for a Mueller, um, a new a new round of Mueller indictments. Um, you know, I'm watching Roger Stone's public appearances um, on Fox and elsewhere, um, uh, hearing about uh, various. Um, fairly credible rumors about Rick Gates's um, negotiated indictment and the kind of information he could be providing to the special counsel. Um, and so I would, I would be worried about uh, Robert, Mueller's, um, um, Robert Mueller's position um, in the coming weeks with Trump in this frame of mind. And whilst we're talking about Russian nerve gas and Russia stepping up, um, it's sort of blatant, overt um, behavior. You know, this is, this is a much more... This was a much more, um, um, uh, um, much less well-disguised um, poisoning than the polonium one 10 years ago. Um, uh, then I would be worrying about Christopher Steele's um, security. Um, you know, that they, they haven't tended to target foreign nationals. They usually target Russians on foreign soil. But I suspect Christopher Steele, um, you know, it, it, it ought to be stepping up his security. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's it's it's always been interesting to consider how the Russians will play this thing the way they play them. Evelyn, one of the things that we talk about a lot is Trump's crises are all of his own creation, and he hasn't really faced one of international creation yet. We're in a period of really remarkable turmoil where the leadership structure of the U.S. government will not settle down for the next two to three months. What do you think's the most dangerous situation during that period? Oh my gosh. I mean, I tend to agree with Nick that, and I guess it's the obvious one, you know, that um, something will go wrong with those negotiations with North Korea if they're not handled properly, if they do proceed as early as May with just the president doing what I call the ribbon cutting, you know, which is basically kicking off some kind of process that has been poorly defined. And somehow that that conversation with Kim Jong-un doesn't go well. Um, so I, I worry about something going wrong there because I think all of us agree, this is kind of a bipartisan agreement, a bipartisan and Trumpian agreement. We're all together 
right now agreeing that that speaking is better than fire and fury. And as long as the pressures kept on the maximum engagement part, that as Nick pointed out, let's just keep talking. Um, but I worry a little bit about something going wrong if it's not handled properly and the president goes in there and the talks go awry. Having said that, um, the the things that we don't, we can't predict. I mean, it, there are so many things, you know, God forbid we have some kind of terrorist incident on our soil because we know our president uses that in a very negative fashion, generally speaking, to divide Americans, to advocate for all kinds of destructive policies when it comes to not only unity within America, but our relations with other countries across the globe. So I think obviously that would be um, a problem for the administration. Uh, the you know we have uh, troops fighting in Syria, in Afghanistan. Um, those are areas where things could happen. Um, you know they're kinetic already. Uh, so certainly, if there were some kind of crisis, the Russian government. I think they got the message from us when we killed the Russian contractors who basically were, in essence, under the control of the Kremlin, who were encroaching on the U.S. troops who were there with the Syrians fighting um, ISIS. And the, I think the Russia, the Kremlin and the Russian military got the message, don't mess with the Americans in Syria. But God forbid they test us again. And I will say that I did view that in part as a test. So there are a whole host of things that could there you know there's there are the Chinese who are watching this North Korea development this dialogue development with some measure of concern because they're now a little bit left out of it and that's another part of this dynamic you know most people don't realize that the South Korean foreign minister and the Japanese foreign minister are both supposed to land I believe to Friday um, in the United States and. Um, we used to have the six-party talks where all these countries knew how they fit into a negotiation with North Korea, and now that doesn't seem to be the case. So um, I'm going back to North Korea, sorry. <laughs> but, but I mean, I think, you know, there, there are a whole bunch of uh, potential crisis, you know, situations around the globe. And unfortunately, our president doesn't reach out and look for allies, and he certainly doesn't reach out when our allies, going back to, to, to the UK situation, when our allies are confronted by a crisis. So if there is a crisis, his, his, his reflexes are all negative. And I guess that's all I can say. That's been terrific. This has been a terrific episode. By the way, as we were recording this episode, um, Nikki Haley, the next Republican presidential candidate, said that if we don't take immediate concrete measures to address this, meaning the Russian attack in the UK, Salisbury will not be the last place we will see chemical weapons used. This is a defining moment, which is interesting. I guess this is Nikki Haley's red line on chemical weapons use. Uh, and in terms of immediate action, I wonder if that might include sanctions of some sort. I think I know the answer. I think you know the answer because you're deep state radio nerds and you're ahead of the game on everything because you listen to great conversations like this one. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you, Ed. We'll be back with another show actually tomorrow, the one we recorded earlier in the week. Uh, and we'll keep coming at you as you need it. We love you, deep state radio nerds. So long. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is a special episode coming to you 
a little early because so many things are happening in the world that you cried out for us to respond to that we thought, why not get up early on a Sunday morning and try to provide you with a little of the perspective you won't get from those Sunday shows. Uh, really, who can sleep yeah, anyway? Yeah, exactly. And and we're groggy and we're willing to show it. Um, uh, joining me here in the extended virtual third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, David Sanger of the New York Times, Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council, and Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And of course, the first thing on our list is the recent addition to the United States government, which will begin in just a few days, of one of our most interesting, colorful characters. Um, I am the walrus, the mustache of John Bolton, followed by the rest of John Bolton, uh, an arrival in this administration which has caused many uh, people who are normally fairly cool of temperament uh, some alarm. In fact, former uh, or, or, or sometime visitor to our, our show, uh, Colin Call, um, uh, former senior national security official in the Obama administration, uh, responded, we're all going to die. Maybe. Not sure. Um, let's start with David Sanger. Should Colin calm down or are we all going to die? Well, those of us who do deep state radio with you, we're not going to die. And the reason is that we invested in those silos that, you know, we talk about so often before Bolton's appointment. So exactly. we're good. Okay. Rosa Brooks, Rosa Brooks, silos she, are us. <laughs> yes. I'm glad saved, I could help. <laughs> she saved us all. And that's why we're broadcasting to you now from, you know, what's happened basically since Bolton's appointment is that Rosa has begun looking for silos that go even a little bit deeper. Um, are we going to all die out of this? Um, I would say that the chances that we ended up... That's not the question they're asking on the Sunday morning shows, but that's the one everyone wants. One wants to know, sure. So um, the chances that we end up in some kind of armed confrontation, I did not say war, some kind of armed confrontation that lasts for some period of time with either North Korea or Iran, you have to assume the betting pool on that has gone up somewhat. And that's just based on what John Bolton has said, and he's said a lot, in the years leading up to um, the, uh, the, his appointment uh, on Thursday. Um, to some degree, it is less surprising that McMaster's uh, time came to an end after, you know, just a few days after he had been in for a year, than that um, President Trump, a man who got elected saying that the Iraq war was a huge mistake, that we should never have done it, we have no interest policing the world, ended up hiring a guy who may be one of the last Republican holdouts saying that he actually thinks the invasion of Iraq was strategically a fine idea and worked out just fine. Um, so that's number one. Number two is he's the one who wrote an op-ed in the Times in late 2014 
to that had the headline on it to stop Iran from getting the bomb, bomb Iran. So he wanted to go after Iran just as they were closing in on the nuclear deal that he is going to pull a plug on uh, with President Trump, we would bet, on May 12th. And on North Korea, uh, he's the man who has said, um, yes, we should have the two presidents meet briefly. It's to explain to the North Koreans that they should immediately deliver all of their nuclear infrastructure, weapons, whatever, to the to our nuclear facility in Tennessee. That's the only thing we're going to say and discuss. They'll hear the ultimatum. We'll go away. Um, which is not usually the way most diplomats consider conducting a, a, a negotiation. They usually say, you know, you give X, we give Y, things like that. That's not what he's interested in, in doing here. And um, he's been a big advocate for preemption. Now, he said the other day that all the things he said in the past don't matter. The only thing that matters right now is what President Trump thinks. The well, difficulty that's, very, that's very comforting. Isn't that comforting? Um, but the difficulty here is that we have always sort of counted on the triumvirate of um, Mattis, Tillerson, and McMaster to sort of calm down the president from his uh, occasional outbursts um, and emotions. And at this moment, only Mattis is left out of that group. And he's not over at the White House all that often. Uh, so um, what you've got is the last man that uh, Donald Trump will hear before making big decisions uh, is going to be um, John Bolton. Could be the last man Donald Trump ever hears, if what you say is true. You know, one of the things... <laughs> the, one of the things that was a big hit out of last week's conversations was the idea of rosa-covered glasses, um, of, of people wanting to see the world through your eyes, Rosa. Um, I know, because it's such a, a happy, cheerful way to look at the world. It is a happy, cheerful way to look at the world. Um, I, listening to David... Um, What's what's your reaction? What was your reaction to this Bolton appointment? Well, no, as 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 David said, I immediately redoubled my my silo research efforts. Um, I you know I think David is right. This dramatically increases the odds of uh, some sort of military confrontation uh, with North Korea or with Iran or who knows. We I'm sure we could find somebody else um, to get angry at and so forth. Um, I I. It is a cheerful outlook on the world because it means that every day that the sun rises again, I am pleasantly surprised. So I'm always happy. Um, so today too, I'm happy, um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay with that, with that cheerful approach to the apocalypse. But no, I, it is, it is, it is. I'm, I'm speechless in this <laughs> because we. How many times has Donald Trump done something? We've all said, "Oh, it's shocking," and and you sort of run out of words to describe the shockingness and the awfulness. And and I really don't have the vocabulary to express this. As David said, um, John Bolton seems to represent the polar opposite of what Donald Trump claimed he wanted. Um, the only thing the two men appear to have in common is a aggressive bellicosity that is entirely unrelated to any objective reality out there. Um, I think it's worth pointing out a, a couple of additional things about John Bolton. 
Um, one being it's not just that he supported the Iraq war. Lots of people supported the Iraq war. Um, it's that there have been many allegations that he was actively involved in trying to suppress more accurate intelligence that was out there that, that would have cast doubt on the claims of weapons of mass destruction. You know, that, that he he was not simply, oh, gee, I was given wrong information. Uh, uh, sorry about that. And of course, he's not sorry. He's made it very clear he's not at all sorry about that. But that he was busily trying to make sure that the accurate information never saw the light of day. Uh, he was loathed by his Republican colleagues uh, during the Bush administration. Uh, he could not get confirmation. He was a recess appointment as ambassador to the UN because uh, President Bush could not get the votes to get him through during during the regular term. Uh, he didn't have enough Republican well, support a Republican either. From a Republican Senate. From a Republican Senate. Uh, he was roundly denounced by various Republican members of Congress. Uh, and and he was famously the object of efforts by everyone from uh, then Secretary of State Colin Powell to uh, then National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice to freeze him out of all discussions because he was viewed as a irresponsible loose cannon who was willing to lie to get his way. And in fact, the president uh, who, who appointed him later said that he didn't believe he was credible. Right, precisely. Um, so so this, is, this is a guy who in many ways was a, a pariah, even amongst the neocons who many people saw him as representing, uh, because he was viewed as, as dishonest and irresponsible. And now he's going to be our national—he's going to be our national security advisor. Well, um, let me let me let me turn to Evelyn here as we sort of continue this first first round. One of the things, you know, I mean, I, you know, Rose's view of the world is is typically bleak, and I'm sure that at some point <laughs> in the not too distant future, we're going to get big sponsorship offers from Xanax and Zoloft. Um, uh, and 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 other drug manufacturers who feel listening. Listening to Rosa could boost the sales of their drugs. Um, Rosa may be our new optimist. Yeah. Be. After, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, by the way, we want oh, yeah. to. <laughs> no, I don't think I'm about to help much, but go on. Well, we wanted we wanted Corey to join, but there was a timing issue here. But 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 the the reality is, and and I I want to get this as gritty and insidery as you can get. You know that when you talk to people. Republicans, some hardline Republicans, they can't stand this guy. They think this guy is really dangerous. They worked with him. A hundred U.S. ambassadors signed a, a, a document saying he should not be the national security advisor. <clears throat> I mean, he should not be the U.S. U.N. ambassador back, back in the day. Um, since then, it's gotten worse. This is a guy <clears throat> who has worked with Cambridge Analytica using the 50 million stolen documents that, that, that or the identities that came from Facebook. This is a guy who's been on tapes with the Russians, uh, you know, saying, you know, you have more freedom in Russia and you should, you should, you know, uh, you know, he's, he's been tied into everything that's wrong with the Trump administration and excoriated by everybody who knows anything about national security? Let me start by this question, Evelyn. Do you think I'm overstating it? No, I mean, it's it's clear. You talk to any, first of all, just open up your Washington Post today. 
you know, George Will has a column, the second most dangerous American, he says, is John Bolton. So, and why? Because the guy is going to be like General Mike Flynn, but someone who's bureaucratically savvy, who has foreign policy experience, you know, by all accounts, he's a, he's a, he's a very smart man. Um, and people know how he plays. He plays down and dirty. He, he's the guy that um, Carl Ford, who was a longtime um, intelligence analyst at the State Department, he testified in front of Congress saying that John Bolton's a kiss-up, kick-down guy. Um, and that's not just you know how he interacts with people, including his Republican colleagues, but how he works, how he gets things done. So I think uh, Republicans are also aghast. They would have much preferred someone like Steve Began, who was the other guy who was being discussed as a potential replacement for H.R. McMaster. I would venture to guess most of us on the call know Steve. Steve is a responsible guy. He served for a long time as a senior staffer in, on the Hill in Congress. He's worked for Ford Motor Company now for over a decade, I believe. You know, he would have been a solid, a very tempered man. He also worked in Russia, understands the Russia threat. Um, so I think you're, you're right. And, you know, David is right about uh, Bolton and how he, he, he will approach policy. I mean, I think the other thing I would add is that this is somebody who is not only, you know, quick to uh, reach for the military, you know, weapon, weapon of weapons of war. But he's also somebody who's a unilateralist, and he's deeply skeptical of arms control and, of course, negotiated nonproliferation. And those are also things that are very troubling at this moment in time. You know, he was known to exaggerate potential nonproliferation threats. Um, he seemed to have almost fabricated one pertaining to Cuba and biological weapons back when he was in the in the Bush administration as um, undersecretary responsible for nonproliferation and arms control. So he, there are, there are and, many and things by about the way, his... As, as a footnote, when he, he came up with this uh, unfounded uh, claim about Cuba, uh, it, he tried to fire a couple of people who wanted to point out that it was unsubstantiated. Right, and that gets back again to his you know, his, his modus operandi, how he deals with opposition, how he plays dirty to get his way. Of course, it backfired on him because, and, and I'll just close with this, you know, you mentioned that he was um, effectively sidelined by his superiors. Well, he was sidelined in the North Korea example, first by the North Koreans who said, they called him a bloodsucker and scum because he had, granted, spoken the truth, but you he know, had- we should, we, we should get some North Koreans on this podcast because- <laughs> They always no. cut to the chase. You know, Sanger dresses it up in New York Times language. But I think blood-sucking scum is is pretty much where we're all headed here, and we're just not saying it. Well, anyway, I, I mean, look, anyone who treats their colleagues the way that he reportedly treated his colleagues um, doesn't doesn't deserve any, any praise in my book, um, leaving aside his policies, and they're pretty bad. Um, so I, I that, and then just to finish on North Korea, on our side, basically the the Bush administration, his his uh, colleagues said he can't he can't participate in the negotiations. So this is not uh, somebody who's going to moderate the president's more volatile policy perspectives. No, or, or anybody else's. You know, I mean, one of the things that uh, you know has been reported in in in, for example, the Israeli press 
was that Bolton, you know, pressured them to go after the Iranians. You know, but you know, he 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 just he seems to have this 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 bloodlust. But Ed, you know, I I think we've established here that this is somebody who um, strikes fear into the hearts of people who know about foreign policy and national security on both sides of the aisle. He's, there's a kind of a bipartisan consensus that this guy is absolutely cray cray. Bonkers. So bonkers, batshit, you know, you know, and, and whatever. But 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 let's 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 take it a, a step deeper. Um, one of the things that that troubles me when I read these analyses in newspapers is people say things like well, this is the emerging Trump doctrine. And I don't think there's any Trump doctrine. I, you know, I, in fact, I got into a Twitter exchange yesterday with Walter Russell Mead, who I respect a lot, but who was saying, well, you know, he's not an isolationist. He's an interventionist. And he is. And I'm like, he's nothing. He, you know, he views the whole world as like a suit. You know, foreign policy is like a suit. You know, he wants to wear what looks good on him. It's about how it all looks in the mirror Everything is about how it looks for Trump. So I don't think he's got a, a, a foreign policy core. But I do think there's a trend. And the trend from Trump's instincts that's now going to be amplified by Bolton's instincts and, and Pompeo's instincts and, 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 frankly, the instincts of Peter Navarro and, and some of the people on the economic side is to essentially try to reverse every underlying core impulse of U.S. foreign policy for the past 75 years, which in the wake of World War II focused on creating an international system, uh, using that international system to avoid conflict, uh, using international institutions as fora to avoid conflict, giving credence to the rule of law. You know, uh, you know John Bolton has said, you shouldn't even honor international law when it feels good, you know. When it, you know, if you think it's got a short-term benefit, because it, it's, you know, it's, it's like a gateway drug. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, but you know, to me, that this is this is kind of profound because Trump has stumbled and and impulsively lurched towards a policy that has gotten us out of the Paris Accords, gotten us out of TPP, uh, has us renegotiating NAFTA, has us attacking alliances, has us attacking the UN, has us now contemplating unilateral action, has us probably by May 12th pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. This is a profound reversal in US foreign policy um, not just for a generation, for, but for the past three generations. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Uh, well, to, to, to agree, but I mean, I don't, I disagree slightly that there isn't a Trump doctrine. The word doctrine might be, uh, you know, way, way too sort of formal to describe these sort of loose impulses that Trump has. But if you remember an op-ed uh, in the Wall Street Journal that Gary Cohn and H.R. McMaster wrote about a year ago, uh, it, it basically set out 
not their own personal views, I don't think, but Trump's views on a sort of Hobbesian world um, of dog eat dog, where there's no such thing as win win, where if one person wins by definition, that means another loses. Um, uh, and in which zero sum is very much the operating principle on trade policy, on diplomacy, uh, and on all the on all the issues America faces in its engagement with the world. And I do think Trump has actually consistently held that that global perspective for many decades without reading up on it, without refining it, without any sort of historical knowledge to back it up. These are his continuing impulses. He's, he's, he's like a natural. He is a natural, and he he views the world world as a suit in another sense too, as a lawsuit. And you win a lawsuit, or you or you lose it. You don't settle out of court. Um, so John Bolton, you know, I think uh, in his very open um, contempt for international deals. Uh, I mean, he he spent a long time as 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 you all on this on this uh, uh, podcast know. Uh, trying to undermine the International Criminal Court and and to punish countries um, bilaterally that did sign up to it. Uh, he's got, um, he's probably the most, um, uh, the personification of the sort of Hobbesian worldview that Trump has, that, that holds the, the very idea of international um, cooperation um, and partnership and alliances in contempt. Uh, so I think I think there is. Uh, I think it's worse than it looks that that Trump does have a sort of what you can loosely call a philosophy here, and he now has the people in place uh, to prosecute it. The the other side of this. Uh, is you know the economic change we've seen recently from Gary Cohn to Larry Kudlow. Uh, now, Brad DeLong put this brilliantly. Um, uh, the 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 economist Brad DeLong put this brilliantly. He said appointing Larry Kudlow to head uh, the National Economic Council is a bit like appointing William Shatner to to command the Seventh Fleet. Uh, this guy you know is is a TV personality um, who's been auditioning like. Bolton has cleverly been doing in recent months, auditioning for the job on TV. Um, they know what part to play, what part they've been auditioning for, um, and they've done it well, and it's worked. And that part is the Hobbesian role that 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 Trump wants to see. That's that's the that's what's so disturbing about this. Is this isn't random? I don't think. I think it's uh, I think it's Trump filling his administration with Trumpians. Well, it's interesting. It it really does go to a kind of zero-sum worldview. You know, either Trump wins or Trump loses, and that's the lens through everything. But, David, you've actually spent some time with Trump. As we've often joked, you were the guy who helped him come to the America First terminology. Oh, you're, I thought you were going to let me forget about that, but I guess well, I can't. No, no chance of that. But, you know, it's actually more troubling because the last time we had any kind of foreign policy impulse in the United States that was akin to this was, in fact, in those days of America first. And while he may have stumbled into it, whether by, you know, by virtue of this kind of instinct Ed talks about or not, uh, we are certain there seems to be a kind of a coherent, although altogether frightening direction that we're headed. Since you've talked to him, I'm just wondering what your thought was on, on what Ed just said. 
Well, I think the big question, uh, and I was thinking this as, as Ed was talking about what Trump's doctrine philosophy, I don't think there's, I don't think we're any place close to a Trump doctrine because that would require him to have sort of consistent uh, impulses on these things. I, I think the big question in the appointment of Kudlow, in the appointment of Bolton, uh, in the appointment of Pompeo is this. Is he actually veering as hard right as those folks talk? Or is he doing this as Steve Hadley, the former national security advisor uh, under President Bush, who dealt a lot with Bolton, uh, says, is he doing this because it's a, a as Hadley put it, a peace through strength uh, move, or as we might put it, a peace through convince people that these guys are crazy enough to actually shoot something off. And that's what I don't know, because uh, Trump certainly has a negotiator's sense for trying to make the other side think you will do anything to win. And the question is, even if that's his intent, if you then spill into a, some kind of event in the world, as will come up, in which somebody's taken a shot at an American aircraft, uh, naval vessel or something, whether it's been a cyber strike, whatever it is, the president will then have to go react. And even if he appointed these people to get negotiating leverage, he may find himself relying on them as he's got to make a judgment about whether to use force. And so I think in his mind, he just wants to appoint the toughest sounding people he could find. And in iteration one of that was, I know, I'll get a bunch of generals. Generals are tough. Well, he discovered over the past year that one general, General McMaster, lectured at him too much in his view and gave him all of these sort of subtle choices during briefings. And it was all terribly annoying. Uh, and then uh, another general, John Kelly, puts these restrictions on him and doesn't want him to tweet, wants to review who he's calling and who's what kind of information he's getting. That didn't quite, it's not going well with his style. And he can't quite figure out Mattis at this point. So uh, he is now turning to people who just sound very hardline. Um, well, Rosa, let me try to comfort you a little bit on this. Um, on one of the Sunday morning shows, Steve Hadley, who I think we all hold in high regard, the former Bush National Security Advisor, said that people shouldn't worry so much about John Bolton because, after all, it's President Trump who will ultimately be the one who decides if the U.S. goes to war. Comforted? <laughs> Strangely enough, not really. <laughs> no, I, I think I think that's it's. David suggested that the scary thing is that Trump will rely on these people uh, when he's making crucial decisions when a crisis pops up. But I think there's no evidence that Trump will, in fact, rely on anybody whatsoever, uh, except for himself when crucial decisions come up. And that indeed uh, gets me to. Uh, something we were discussing before we started recording, David, while 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 Ian, our producer, was trying to teach you how to use Skype, um, the rest you. of us were were chatting. Um, that and could David, take a few hours, by the way. <laughs> well, it did. It was a, it was a while. We had a long time. Ed made coffee. You know, Evelyn had a bath. Uh, you know, we're having a good time. Um, wow. But 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 one of the things that David, I hope you don't mind if I I, I uh, reveal your good line. David revealed to us that that the uh, new unit of time 
uh, that we should all be operating with when we discuss Trump and his advisors is the Scaramucci, the period of time in which uh, good old the, the the old the mooch lasted as a member of the Trump administration, which was which was ten days. So one Scaramucci unit is a ten day unit, which raised the question of how long is John Bolton going to last? How many Scaramuccis? Will John Bolton make it in this administration? Because another thing that we do know about Trump is he doesn't like to be upstaged by anybody. He really does not like to be upstaged. He likes to be the only crazy person. He wants to be the only person who makes outrageous pronouncements and gets media attention. It really annoys him if anybody else starts to do that. So we are now, I believe we are we are 1.5 Scaramucci's away from the day when John Bolton is scheduled to take office as national security advisor on April 9th. I think that the real question is, <laughs> uh-oh, the, the real question is uh, how many Scaramucci's will he actually last once he takes over? Well, by the way, I think that there is a smaller unit of time, uh, apparently, which is a, a de Genoa, because the a president announced on Monday that he was appointing this guy as one of his lawyers, and and he didn't even take the job uh, before it seems like he may not have the job. Um, but uh, by the way, David, we did get into a discussion as we were waiting for you to learn about Skype about whether you could have negative Scaramucci's. In other words, if you're supposed to start a job but you don't actually take it, could you be a, like a a, a minus point zero five Scaramucci? Yeah. Well, and, right. Okay. So you you have you have addressed this. Well, let me. Let's go into a kind of a light. We think of everything at, at we, Deep State Radio. We really do. Yeah, no, we really do. And that's why people are coming back in record numbers to this to this show. Um, we had 75,000 people last week come and tune into this, which is by far a record. And, um, and we expect more and more because things are getting crazier and crazier. Um, but I want to sort of go into- By the way, we call 75,000 people now a unit of one Rothkopf. Thank you. Well, we call it, let's, let's let's just call it a unit of one deep, deep state radio, and let's let's you know we we call it a Trump inaugural crowd. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's very very. I, I think that's an exaggeration. I was there. I don't think there were seventy five thousand people. Wow. We can call it a snark. A, yes. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I like that. Yeah, that's, oh, that's a really that good. is a good that is a good unit. It has a kind of a physics <laughs> sound to it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, like, um, <laughs> but but in any event, let's let, let's just sort of go into a little bit of a lightning round because there are a bunch of consequences of this I would like to touch upon. And Evelyn, I don't mean to go to you with the most boring of all of these. Um, but, bring it on, bring it on. But, but I'm going to bring it on because you're an NSC person and you've sort of seen how the process works and you've seen. Actually, Let's that's work. one of the few places in, in government that I haven't worked, but I've been in the situation room many times. <laughs> well, well, but, well, that but, counts. I mean, that's, well, and, <laughs> and that's that's really what I mean. I, I sort used of, to eat those free M&Ms, you know, yeah, on a regular yeah. basis. They, they have just for those uninitiated. There are M&Ms outside the situation room door. And you scoop them out with a ladle and grab a handful before you go in. To yeah, I just want it. I just want it known that that uh, Rose's silos are are better decorated than the sit room. Yeah, well, that's that's the true. Sit room but is I, a disappointment. I mean, let's face it; it doesn't look nearly as much like the like the sit rooms look in the movies. So no, no, it really looks more like kind of somebody's basement, but big because it is. But let's just. Get back to this point, which which I, I I'm trying to get to, which 
is not about the NSC in terms of National Security Council staff per se, but the process. Um, the process really involves somebody who can bring people together, uh, get opinions, winnow those down, go to the president, present those, get choices, right. and implement those things. Um, all of those skill sets are skill sets that John Bolton seems to lack in one way or another. Are we done with an NSC process? I mean, John Bolton was hired essentially because he's a Fox commentator. He has strong views. And Trump thinks that he's going to go on TV and say stuff about Trump that Trump likes to hear. I mean, it seems like Trump's not interested in the process. Bolton can't do the process. Are we sort of putting that all on hold now for a bit? Well, my sense is that Bolton is enough of a an insider that he'll he'll pretend that he's still having an interagency process because I mean the there would be um, I think a pretty significant revolt among the the experts I call them experts not deep state you know the people who are who are policy experts who work in all of the agencies in the national security agencies and that would result then in trouble coming from Capitol Hill so I think. He'll probably keep up some kind of a charade of an interagency process, but you know the way you do that is in effect you you figure out who you give the pen to someone who's going to put forward a proposal or 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 describe all of the alternate views in such a way that there's only one outcome that's possible, which is the one that you de- you um, John Bolton favor. So he'll, he'll I think he'll be savvy enough to know. Okay, I'm going to have my person, Joe Schmo, you know, write the paper here inside the NSC, circulate it for comment, but don't really take too many of the comments, you know, from the interagency, rather than have the paper originate from the interagency. And and just for those who don't know, I mean, a lot of times the way you generate discussion and then bring something up for decision by first the deputies, so the 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 number twos in the agencies and then all the way up to the president is you you circulate a paper, which is basically a policy paper that says, here's the problem, here are the potential ways that we can address it. And then usually there's not necessarily a recommendation. Um, of course, once you get to the level of the president, there is a recommendation. But, you know, he'll he'll just try to cook the books that way, I think. But of course, he could also just you know, have the process proceed, but still get into the Oval Office and have the last word with the president. So there's either way he's going to have an un, an undue level of influence should he choose to exercise it. And predict, I predict massive leaks uh, if, in fact, the interagency process becomes a sham. The first thing he said he was going to come in and deal with was the leaks and the leakers. I think you have just seen, like, the leading edge because even in the days when John Bolton didn't have that much power, when he was uh, running the uh, arms control side of the State Department and when he was uh, ambassador to the U.N., people were leaking against him. Can you imagine it now? Well, yeah. And can you imagine as sort of the the atmosphere gets darker and darker in the White House and, and, and you know, in terms of investigations and other kinds of things and people start saying – Maybe I should, maybe I should, uh, you know, sort of hedge my bets and be be on a different side of this. But let me let me go in, and I'll I'll go to you, Ed, and then and we'll go around with 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 a couple of these questions. Uh, it seems like one of the first places we may see this, and I, I'm going to go to Ed, but 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 also David afterwards on this. The the influence of this team is not North Korea because 
as far as we know, that you know, the North Korea stuff isn't really even happening. There's there hasn't been much of a response out of the North Koreans since the the president said that he would he would meet with them, uh, and and so that's sort of a question mark. But in the middle of May, we're we're going to come up on uh, a, 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 a a deadline where the, the the U.S. may in fact pull out of the JCPOA with Iran. Um, this is something that uh, Bolton has been for. It's something that Trump has said he would do. It's something he apparently told Bibi he would do. It's something that he that that Senator Corker thinks he's going to do, um, and that this, Pompeo wants to do, and that Pompeo also wants to do. So the first thing we may see is pulling out of that. And I just Ed first, and then then David. What, what do you? What do you think the consequences of that are likely to be? Well, so don't, don't forget that uh, Bolton isn't just against the JCPOA, and he wasn't just against the EU3's uh, attempts to negotiate with Iran um, during the Bush administration, um, but he has explicitly been in favor of regime change in Iran for many, many years. Uh, both arguing inside the Bush administration, uh, as David said earlier, prodding the Israelis to strike Iran, but also since um, the Bush administration, consistently appearing on the most extreme platforms, um, calling for America to lead essentially a war of choice um, to support those seeking regime change in Iran. Now, you know, Trump doesn't have a record of um, of, of arguing explicitly for that. Uh, he's indeed opposed to wars of choice and unnecessary entanglements. But if we get uh, a withdrawal from the JCPOA, which I think was likely before Bolton was announced to replace McMaster anyway, that was on the cards. If we get that, this isn't going to be, you know, uh, the end of a chapter, the closing of a deal that was controversial, this is going to be the opening of a very dynamic um, and deeply troubling new chapter um, in, in America's engagement with the Middle East at a time when its closest ally and Trump's best friend, Mohammed bin Salman, who's who's in in America at the moment, the Saudi um, crown prince, is urging precisely that course of action. Um, so we are, you know, th- this is not, I don't think, hyperbole. We are the closest we have been since 2003 uh, to America preparing for and going down the path of a war of choice. I'm not predicting that will happen. Um, but uh, the odds of that happening have risen very, very sharply in the last few days. Well, oh, okay, David, you've been deeply immersed in this issue. What is your take? Well, I think that, that once I, I think it's inevitable that the president will resume uh, the sanctions. In other words, what's going on here is that when the deal was signed in 2015, the Iranians agreed to suspend their enrichment and do, and any further work on on plutonium plutonium reprocessing for up to 15 years, and then there were sanctions lifted. American sanctions were suspended, some group of them, and then the European ones were. So what would happen if the president decided that the Europeans weren't serious about renegotiating the deal, and if he listened to Pompeo and he listened to Bolton, is that he would reimpose the American sanctions. So the United States would be a breach of the deal. So then the Iranians will have a choice. They could say, option one, okay, you're out of the deal? Then we're out of the deal. The deal no longer exists. 
rev it up, boys, start up that enrichment again, so forth and so on. And there will be a faction in Iran led by the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, I, that my guess is will argue for exactly that because they want to give this stuff up to but begin with. Not, they're not going to do that. What is what is choice? I think I think choice number two, which they're much more likely to do, is cast us as the ones who are the international violators. They'll go to the Europeans, use this to divide us from the Europeans, and say that they will continue to suspend as long as Europe does not reimpose sanctions as well. Then you get to the really interesting part, because Bolton will then turn around, I would guess, and some others, and at least raise the specter that the United States would reimpose secondary sanctions. And secondary sanctions are basically saying to the European banks, if you invest in Iran, you can't do business in dollars. And that would cause a huge breach with the Europeans. My guess is that in the end, they're not going to be able to get away with that and won't be able to go do it. Uh, the other thing that could happen out yeah. here is that um, somebody right. will— by the, by the way, just as a footnote, meanwhile, the United States is getting into a trade war with the Chinese who have the option of saying, you know something, we're going to sell dollars. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. you've, there, there, you've got a, a kind of a, a, a precarious intersection of, of things going on here. Anyway, go on, go on briefly and then we'll go so, on. To so that's 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 the set of options. And then the question comes, if the Iranians did actually resume any of their activities, then the Israelis or Bolton or others would make, resume, presumably, their argument for military action. That's the worst-case scenario. I don't think the Iranians are going to fall for that, but we'll see. But the tensions will rise, right? So The tensions will definitely rise, and in a moment that the markets are beginning to get a little bit uh, nervous about uh, what happens if President Trump actually does enact his— his agenda. Imagine how angry he was that the markets dropped on the announcement of the tariffs. Uh, I think you could see the beginning of an, of an unwinding here. Yeah, and by, and by the way, well, maybe Rosie, you want to comment on this? And again, we've only got about five minutes. But one of the things that strikes me is that we're also at a point in the investigations where the ties to the Middle East and influence of Middle Easterners and so forth is increasing. And or perception is the, the scrutiny of that is increasing and that this may, in fact, color the way um, the U.S. undertaking, a, you know, a largely sort of Saudi agenda on these things may be perceived. Um, I, I, this is I, I guess I have this sort of reaction to Bolton, which is he is, tie, you know, tied into Cambridge Analytica and the Russians and his policies kick into other things. And I just wonder if inviting this guy into the the uh, White House doesn't open new avenues of investigation for um, uh, Robert Mueller. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I mean, clearly on the surface, <laughs> it certainly looks like if you are if you know, if you're an, an ace uh, prosecutorial mind and you are looking for further things that suggest some degree of uh, bad behavior involving Russia, let's just say let's not call it collusion, um, which, as we know, is not a not in any case a legal term. Um, you know that that this is this. It's 
it's what in, 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 in the law we refer to as the appearance of impropriety. And if you're a judge, or uh, you can get in trouble for the mere appearance of impropriety. It certainly adds to the appearance of impropriety, whether or not there is, in fact, uh, uh, a fire behind the smoke. We, we don't know. Um, I mean, my guess, frankly, is that Mueller's got his hands full. Uh, and this is, is, you know, unlikely to be a... a significant shift for him because he's already got so much he's he's looking at. Um, but who knows? Well, but but Evelyn, the Cambridge Analytica thing seems like an area which, which is going to get a lot of attention. Yeah. And 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 both in that with both feet, it seems. Yeah. I mean, I was actually quite surprised to see that he was involved um, because, I mean, it's one of these things like, come on, can't Trump pick people who, who don't have these kind of nefarious Russia connections? I mean, you know, if you look at his cabinet, okay, we lost Tillerson, but there's still Wilbur Ross. And I mean, so so again, it's, it's another kind of, um, I don't even know, hand-wringing is probably too tame of a way, uh, you know, head bashing. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do when I hear this. Um, except, I, you know, I the know. fallback is, okay, uh, you know, Mueller's looking at it. But it, it doesn't look good. I mean, the guy knew, he, he first of all, why is a former ambassador running a PAC? This gets back to the big money and the Supreme Court decision. You know, I mean, I could be running a PAC, I guess, too, but, you know. The difference, Evelyn, is you, weren't, you didn't harbor ideas of running for president. He did, and that's what the PAC comes from. Right. You know, it comes back from his thought before Trump came along that he was going to be a candidate for president of the United States. And the PAC still exists because uh, I've been getting emails from it until a few weeks ago. Um, well, you know, Evelyn, I know what you should do about this. You should write a deep state PAC. No, <laughs> a deep state PAC. Now you're talking. Oh, that is awesome. And that we could shorten true. it up and just call it deep PAC. <laughs> I love it. It is. I think. I think that's a brilliant idea. Nope. The idea that I ha was, you need to write a book about how the hard right in the Republican Party became part of Vladimir Putin's movement. I mean, yeah. th somebody has got to explain this to me. How did this happen? Where did we go from all the? People who were sort of raised on being anti-Russian, anti-communist, anti-Kremlin, anti—you know—they were the most virulent. They were crazy. They were against people going around raising money for UNICEF because they were commies. And all of a sudden, they're all in bed with them. When did that happen? I don't know. I have to say that some of the people in in the American public at large have picked up on this because yesterday at the uh, March for Our Lives. There was an African-American gentleman holding a sign. It was awesome. It said, Vladimir Putin, please tell President Trump to ban automatic weapons. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, hey, David, can we say one, so that we have one thing on this recording in, in, in defense of, of John Bolton? In defense of John Bolton, even when uh, President Trump had this first meeting in Hamburg with, um, uh, with Vladimir Putin, uh, the column that Polton wrote right after that was, I'm glad he sat down and met him so that he would understand how it is to be lied to by the Russians directly to your face. So Bolton has retained, at least in what he has written, his sort of hardline 
anti-Russia um, uh, approach. And I think the most interesting thing to go watch in the relationship with Trump is what happens when that collides with Donald Trump's inability to say anything bad about Vladimir Putin. Okay, um, we've, got, we've, got, we've got time for two one-minute responses here. Ed, what's the thing about John Bolton that we that we haven't discussed that worries you the most? That we haven't discussed? Well, I mean, I guess somebody referenced the Cuba biological stuff. I mean, he's capable of just producing things out of nowhere um, uh, as pretext to war. Um, his his psychology is um, uh, is warlike. I mean, I don't know how how, how else to put it. Um, and we've discussed that, so I'm not being original, but it does profoundly worry me. All right. And to, and finally, and I want to end this on an up note, because there was all of this John Bolton stuff and the Pompeo stuff, and there was, um, uh, you know, and, and, and soon, and this, we're recording this before the Stormy Daniels storm um, this evening, uh, and whatever else falls all out of this. But, but yesterday, the, there was this amazing um, e e explosion of leadership from uh, young people led by the Parkland young people, but 820 plus different demonstrations around the world, uh, hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps upwards of a million people in Washington, D.C. In that crowd, Evelyn indicated she was in there. I know you were there, Rosa, and I just I was just give 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 us give us your take on on what the potential and what it meant to you and what the significance was. No, it was amazing. I was there with my 13-year-old daughter, um, and you know, I think I think for one thing, it's just incredibly powerful for her to see that kids her own age, barely older than than she, uh, can can stand up and and speak for themselves and decide that they're going to try to help galvanize a movement. And there was a real sense of, of they are galvanizing a movement. A lot of these kids are too young to vote. Most of these kids are too young to vote. Most of these kids are going to be too young to vote even in the next presidential election many, in many cases. You know, it's going to be a while, but, but that these are kids who are getting a sense of themselves as people who can make change and getting a sense of themselves as people who need to care. You know, and I think that, that the toughest thing, and I, I say this to all of our deep state folks, you know, that probably all of our listeners are ready, are already registered to vote. If you're not, you shouldn't be listening to us. You should go out right now and figure out how you get registered to vote and how you get all of your friends to register to vote. I think the thing that makes it hard to persuade young people in particular sometimes to vote when they become old enough is that they feel like, oh, I'm just one person out of millions. What difference can it possibly make? And and part of what's so powerful about marches like that is that you have this visible, vi physical representation of lots and lots of one pe one person standing there together and how big that crowd is, you know, and how powerful it can be when people do stand together, you know, and you, you get a sense of, I could have stayed home today, but I came, and everybody else here could have stayed home today, but they came. And look at us. We're filling up this city with hopeful kids who care about the world and are listening and watching the news and reading the news and want to do something about it, you know, and, and if, if, if a fraction of those kids end up re actually registering and actually going out there and voting, you know, it can make an enormous difference in the future of this country. So it was it was very exciting. It was very it was very poignant and sad listening to, you know, 11 year olds talk about the 
gun deaths of their siblings. Um, but it was also incredibly inspiring listening to these kids themselves too young to vote saying to each other, when we're old enough, we have to fix this. The adults have screwed up. Uh, it's our turn. We, we have to make change. And I think that's I think that's right. And I think that's a, uh, a, you know, not just a hopeful note to 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 frame this conversation, um, which sounded a lot like an existential scream for much of it. Um, but, uh, but but it's the reality. There is a time limit on Trump's presidency. There is a time limit maybe measured in Scaramucci's or negative Scaramucci's on Bolton's tenure as national security advisor. There are risks associated with that. Um, but the rising generation is going to be around for a long time. And when you listen to 11-year-old Naomi Wadler stand up and talk you know, in, seriously about the undercoverage of the loss of uh, women of color, girls of color in, 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 in this violence and speak with greater insight, and character and gravitas uh, and eloquence than the president of the United States has ever spoken. Uh, and then you have people like Emma Gonzalez from uh, Parkland High School who in their silence say more than the president has ever said with all his words and tweets. Then you see that something can change in the long term that can be positive. Um, and, you know, hopefully that will be of some comfort. I'm sure Rosa has been doing this entire broadcast from under her bed. Um, and she may remain there for the duration. But but you'll come out afterwards, right, Rosa? <laughs> I'll come out when my kids are old enough to vote. Yeah, David, well, I have to inter in interject because I've heard the kids correct people when they call the school the wrong name, they're very proud that it's the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School because of her legacy. Just Google it on Wikipedia. So it's not the Stone, whatever you call it, the Parkland High School. Well, I said the Parkland kids, but yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm, um, I'm just trying to preempt the tweeting. Well, yeah, let's preempt the tweeting. I want all the tweeting that follows this to be about deep state pack. Um, let's yes, exactly. And snark. You know, I, I, that is probably the best business plan for a podcast I think I've ever heard. Yeah, no, no. I think it's fantastic. Donate to Deep State Pack uh, and get a free get a mug. set of <laughs> rosa, colored, rosa colored glasses. Um, uh, which, by the way, people have shown pictures of that on the Internet, what they think that looks like. So, you know, that's that's something to work on. Uh, this special episode is going to go up. Uh, soon you're hearing it once it's gone up but the next episode will be at its usual time i think uh going up on wednesday night and i'm sure there'll be plenty to discuss then meantime thank you to david and ed and rosa and evelyn for getting up early on a sunday morning uh have a good remainder to your weekend and uh we'll see you all again here at deep state radio deep state radio is a production of the deep state radio network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.